Wow. I did a great job writing the show notes this time. I've got New Blood Rising earned. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I'll be checking these numbers later. New Blood Rising earned 80,000. Sorry. And I go on and say it. Goodness sakes. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I never rewrote Al's uh, intro joke for this episode, but uh, you appear to be sailing through several plate glass windows without evident harm again, Al. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it's a bad habit I picked up, apparently, but I should really work on that. What the heck did we talk about last episode? Oh, yeah, New Blood Rising. I guess you're... Um, Storming off the set while the director complains at you. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Al. How are you? It's going all right with me. You doing all right? I'm doing good, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's that's the best uh, screw-up I've had so far, because I actually screwed up on writing the thing instead of reading the thing. It's easy just mismounting an announcer's name, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, tonight, I am tremendously happy because we are starting a series, Beach Blast and Bash at the Beach, that runs for long enough that we get to have several shows before the NWO era. It's true. There can be good stuff in there, mind, but I needed a break. Yeah. And some more bright colors. Lots of bright colors. You definitely get plenty of neon in this show, that is for sure. Yes. So, first up is Beach Blast 1992. World Championship Wrestling beats the heat. I don't know. I don't think it's the best idea to try to suplex the sun. No. Give you one heck of a sunburn. I really hope they don't have Beats the Heat for the 95 show where they're actually outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, WCW, uh, no, uh, wears lots of sunscreen. Yeah, yeah. Beach Blast 1992 was held on June 20th, 1992 at the Mobile Civic Center in Mobile, Alabama, in front of 4,000 people. The Mobile Civic Center arena is recorded as seating between 8,000 and 10,000 people, and the seating arrangement for wrestling in particular is listed as 10,000. So if that's the case, WCW did not even reach the halfway mark this time. Beach Blast 1992 earned 80,000 pay-per-view buys, tied for the lowest in 1992 with that year's Great American Bash. It's not a good number, though this is the era when WCW is averaging in the 100,000s, not higher. So it's not that bad in comparison. True. And hey, it's still better than 10 of WCW's 12 shows in the year 2000, and all three shows in 2001, often by 20 or 30,000. Oof. Prior to the show, there was a single dark match. Junkyard Dog, Tom Zenk, and Big Josh beat Tracy Smothers, Richard Morton, and Diamond Dallas Page in a six-man tag match. Sad as I am to miss an early DDP match, we're already getting one six-man tag later on tonight, and I admit, I'm glad not to have two of those on one show like Road Wild 1999. I am curious, though, because obviously there's no footage of this as a dark match. I'm curious if they had him walk out with the two bears for a dark <laughs> match untelevised. Would they really? Probably not, but... They don't have the expense of pay the trainer and the bears to walk out and match no one will see with a live crowd. It is WCW, so that That's, is a yeah, I don't want to think it, yeah. Probably did. So... What does a day at the beach, or at least the beach-like set, 
look like for WCW? To find out, let's go to the ring. Tonight, turn up your AC for summer's hottest action with World Championship Wrestling. Who will be crowned the first lady of WCW? Can the Steiner brothers send Doc and Gordy packing back to Japan? Will the ring be able to hold Sting and Cactus Jack? Find out who the real Iron Man is. There's only one way to catch this sizzling slam fest. It's the WCW Beach Blast. Our wonderful early 90s video package features a beach and waves motif and finishes off with one of WCW's greatest ever show logos, the big wave that turns into a fist. That is great, yeah. Absolutely killer. Of course, that fist retired and became the SmackDown logo. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Tony Schiavone, wearing a blue polo shirt, welcomes us to the show alongside Eric Bischoff, who is wearing a very loud, colorful Hawaiian shirt. They build up the world tag team title match between the Steiners and Dr. Death and Terry Gordy. Tony brings in Bill Watts, WCW's new executive vice president. It's weird to see someone else being called executive VP while Bischoff is standing right there. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Watts builds up several of the night's contests, and as he brings up the Iron Man contest between Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat, he notes that while WCW is setting up strict rules and regulations for matches— If the wrestlers in the match agree to their own regulations, they'll let them settle it. That said, Paul E. Dangerously and Medusa are banned from ringside so that they can't help Rude. Now let's hook them up and kick it off, Watts says. I don't think that's going to catch on as a wrestling podcast title, man. Try again. Can't really think about these things in 1992. Yeah. Tony throws to Jim Ross, who will be heading up the actual commentary team tonight, who is also wearing a very loud shirt. Ross builds up the Iron Man match and the tag title match again and throws to Jesse the Body Ventura at the beach, by which I mean a sandy set on the stage with lots of beach paraphernalia. It's a great little set, actually, especially after seeing the precisely zero work that WCW did on set design in 2000. They had a drape, Bob. What else do you want? Everything else. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Jesse, Jesse has a little trouble getting out of a poolside reclining chair. But several ladies in bikinis help him stand up and walk with him down to ringside. Jesse, wearing a shark-themed shirt with blood spatter patterns on it, which is a tad disturbing, waves goodbye to the ladies and joins JR. JR throws to ring announcer Tony Geller with a, let's kick it off. Well, well, I guess we're changing to a football podcast now. I guess it's all about punting. Yeah. (laughs) So our first match is Scotty Flamingo versus Flyin' Brian Pillman for Pillman's WCW Light Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Mike Atkins. Flamingo is an up-and-coming star in WCW, apparently pushed there against his will. He's talked about in interviews since, because, you know, Raven loves doing shoot interviews. Essentially, he said he didn't want to be light heavyweight, which I don't think was a knock against like the other competitors. just even he, at that point, realized how they treated that division. True, yeah. But he went along, then he did quite well. He built up a nice winning streak as well, which got him the number one contendership for this match tonight. Okay. Scotty Flamingo comes out in a weirdly cut-up jacket and nice wide-brimmed hat. The difference from his future look as Raven is nearly as shocking as the one between early 90s Steve Austin and his later Stone Cold look. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Pillman is out next, stripped of his last name by the Chiron. We get quick counter-wrestling to start, and Pillman gradually gets the advantage with hammerlocks, then knees Flamingo in the elbow for a couple two-counts. JR notes that Johnny B. Bad will be judging a bikini contest tonight, and Jesse complains that it should be him. 
filming Crucifix Sunset Flip for two, and he keeps working the arm with the short arm scissors, though Flamingo rolls him up for a couple two counts holding the tights. An arm bar and arm wrenches. Jesse does a great job explaining the intricacies of the short arm scissors and how it cuts off circulation. In an odd bit during an arm bar, Flamingo maneuvers Pillman close to a pin, grabbing the ropes for leverage while Atkins isn't looking. Jesse says that's a smart move, but wouldn't it be better if Atkins did see him grab the ropes since it would force a break of the armbar? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. funny. It's like, aha, I can use the ropes for leverage on a pin, but not thinking, oh, I could also get the hold off me if I let the ref know that I've reached him. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. Flamingo eye rake, but Pillman drop kicks him and he ends up hanging from the top rope, so Pillman kindly dumps him out onto the concrete. Then tricks Flamingo into dodging a fake dive, shushes the crowd so as not to let Flamingo know, and double axe handles Flamingo from the apron. Nice little bit of crowd interaction there. That was nice, yeah. Back in, Pillman goes up top. Top rope moves are now a DQ in WCW for some bizarre Bill Watts reason. <laughs> Realizing that, Pillman hesitates, and that gives time for Flamingo to hurl him to the mat. So, if your opponent throws you off the top rope, do you get, like, a DQ credit, where you can do one DQ-worthy thing without being disqualified now? Well, does that move the rocket launcher, where you throw him off, your partner off, and land on somebody? Yeah, how does that interact with the who's de- Who's disqualified? The guy who's thrown, or the guy that does the throwing? I assume nobody, because, I mean, we've just shown that being thrown off the top rope is not a disqualification. So if you happen to hit another wrestler on the way down, it seems like that's just fair. Yeah, I'm with you on that. (laughs) Flamingo Stomp earns two when he sends Pillman outside and dives out onto him, which is somehow not a DQ, despite being a longer distance and far more dangerous than jumping off the top rope. It's true, yes. Back in, Flamingo wins an exchange of strikes with an eye rake, and they trade two counts with a Flamingo second rope fist drop, Pillman crossbody that's almost a shoulder block, Flamingo massive clothesline, Pillman roll up, and Flamingo reverse chin lock with rope leverage. Pillman catches Flamingo with a sleeper, but Flamingo rams him into the turnbuckle to get free, and they simultaneously punch each other out. Both men up at nine. Flamingo wins a slug vest with a couple eye rakes, but on the second rope double axe handle, Pillman drop kicks him in midair. As Pillman beats Flamingo up, Jesse notes that Flamingo is looking for a tag. He's so dazed, he thinks he's in a tag match. (laughs) Nice little bit there. Yeah, right? Flamingo eventually catches a charging Pillman with a power slam for two, but goes to celebrate on the second rope, and Pillman recovers and belly-to-back suplexes him for two. Pillman clotheslines Flamingo to the elevated entrance ramp, but Flamingo dodges a dive, and Pillman eats ramp. As Pillman crawls back into the ring, Flamingo hits a second rope knee strike to the ribs for the three count and the win. Flamingo rolls out of the ring before Atkins can even hand him the belt, and dazedly celebrates with it outside as we get a replay of the missed dive and the knee strike. Thoughts on this one? That was a very strong competitive match, which was nice to see, given how we know the restrictions they put on this division. I mean, taking away top rope moves is just a weird, arbitrary thing. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a problem we'll, we'll go over the other night, but it's just it's an interesting choice. It's weird that, like, Taking top rope moves out because it's dangerous, you can hurt your opponent. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the logic. But also, let's take the mats off the floor. So they fight on the outside, they hurt themselves more? Yeah, well, and like I said, you have no floor mats, and people are diving from the ring mat or apron down to the floor, Yeah, which is at the very least the same distance as the top rope, but probably more. 
that aside, I thought they did a really good match. Uh, it's a great example of how you can do s- simple storytelling within the match itself. To be honest, there's not a lot of Pillman and Flamingo on the buildup I was able to watch on WCW Saturday Night. It's not like at interviews and like competitive matches or like tag matches they're involved in. So I can really only go off the match in front of me. So in the match itself, you get to see how Flamingo was really cocky. All the classic heel stuff, but he really, you get a feel for the character 100% in this match. It's a nice microchasm, which is mm-hmm. really good. Whereas same with Pillman, you get the idea that he's very aggressive and he can, that can be used against him. You can get him to do a movie he shouldn't do if you sort of make him mad. But he's also a very technically sound. It can sort of mess with you. Mm-hmm. They definitely work this in the very 80s style in both the best and worst ways. It's all, you know, arm holds and stuff. They do work in a few high spots they're able to do with limitations, like the second rope moves and the dive they're allowed to do within the dive that doesn't work out for Pillman. So I'm glad they add some accent to it so it's not just a basic match, as good as it is, the working holds and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about back in 84 when this first came up in the original version, essentially was a regular match. They just kind of worked it faster. Yeah, you still had the same kind of stuff going on in the, the early 80s uh, light heavyweight matches as in a heavyweight match. It was just, like you said, it was a faster pace. I almost want to go back and watch that match from A4 again just to see how close it is in style. Because I was thinking about it a lot watching that match on a rewatch. I think you have some good like exchanges and mat wrestling and stuff like that in that one, but you um, you don't have like the dives, and that's the thing that really gets added as we go into the 90s, I think. I will say if they really committed this whole, you know, no top rope moves and no dives, other than the exceptions, apparently, if they could at least lean into that with this finish where he does a dive and it horribly backfires on him, Mm-hmm. then at least that's something. Yeah, I think I'm, a, I'm of two minds about the rule, as, as I think we'll go over over the course of the show, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But my feeling is the rule is dumb, but they actually use it really well tonight. Yeah. They make the best of a bad situation. It's a, it's a stupid idea Agreed. that cripples certain types of matches. You basically couldn't have done the late 90s WCW Cruiserweight stuff with that oh, rule no. at all. Yeah, right? And... The problem I have with that rule is that the people that tend to do cool top rope moves are faces yeah, who get cheered for it because the crowd wants to see a cool top rope move. And I remember like Watts, I think in one interview, I forget when, but he says something like, well, you know, you can still do a top rope move. You just have to make sure the ref doesn't see it. And that's like, no, that, that works for heels. Yeah. You know, a face doesn't do things that he has to hide from the ref. True. Yeah. It'd be one thing if it was genuinely out of concern for wrestlers' safety, but it's clearly not because, as you said, they took off the mats around the ring and allow other far more dangerous moves to happen. And they still, in fact, allow top rope moves as a matter of storyline. Yeah. In terms of the competition, they're outlawed, but not in terms of the actual performance. Yeah, it's just, I think it's a poor choice for a rule, but I think as we'll see over the course of the night, they make actually fairly good use of that rule. I think they basically explore all of the good uses you could have for it tonight. Pretty and it would get repetitive if you, if you kept doing it. But I appreciate that they really put in effort to make that rule work despite itself. I will say, too, you can really see how abrupt this change is because for research purposes, I watched WCW Saturday Night, which is their main show. The intro is full. It's all action intro, which is, you know, different matches, people doing moves. Half of what the intro is people doing top rope dives. Yeah. Because people like to see those moves. Yeah. And so even before and after this show, when they formally make this a rule, they don't bother changing the intro at all. 
They really should have just slapped up a band sticker on each of those clips in the intro. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> or a picture of Bill Watts standing with there with his arms folded and giving a very stern look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An early meme of Bill Watts, yeah. I really thought this was a great energetic opener. There's varied action, mixing holds, strikes, and acrobatics. The nonsensical top rope DQ rule, as I noted, could have hurt this one quite a bit, but the guys did a good job of working around it, making just one nod to it with Pillman's top rope hesitation mid-match that was likely there to help establish the rule in fans' minds. They managed to work in a lot of high-flying moves between their dives and second rope stuff, so they kept the light heavyweight feel quite well. Mm -hmm. Had some fun audience interaction, and this was a great match to get the crowd charged up and into the show. Good choice for an opener. Agreed, yeah. Flamingo would hold the belt for a whopping 15 days. Okay, so we're in like the 2000 era title reigns here. (laughs) Actually, no, I'm sorry. That would be like two days. (laughs) Yeah. He would drop it to Brad Armstrong at a house show. The date of that house show, by the way, is July 5th, which is my birthday. Okay. I really start to feel like I'm a bad luck charm. (laughs) Well, you're a good luck charm for Brad Armstrong. Look at that. Oh, okay. There you go. And I mean, really... Between Scotty Flamingo and Brad Armstrong of the America Jacket, I think you want to be a good luck charm for Brad Armstrong. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> As for Pillman, he would be part of the thing I'll bring up a lot during this show, because it's the next show. <laughs> Basically, they're doing a big tournament to declare new NWA tag team title holders. So that takes place on the Kasha Champions, which technically was taped before this show, but will air two days after this show, and goes into the Great American Bash show. One of the shows that Bob is looking the least forward to, because it's like seven tag matches in one singles match. <sighs> yeah. I'm reading that. I'm like, oh boy, this would be fun when we go to the Great American Bash. There's a lot of good stuff, because there'll be a lot of classic stuff, but then here's just one show where it's just, here's a tag match, and another tag match, and another tag match. And I like tag matches, honestly. I just, yeah. I don't like recapping tag matches. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, like you said, there's only so many formers you can do with yeah. a tag match. So yeah. Unless you get really, really creative with it, you start really noticing around the third or fourth one you've seen on the same show. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, these feel a little similar. And in in sequence as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Pillman would team up with Jushin Thunder Liger as part of that tournament, making it through the class show and onto the pay-per-view itself. Okay, cool. JR brings up Bad judging the bikini contest again, and Ventura complains some more in mildly homophobic fashion. We go to the stage where Bad is in a sparkly black outfit with eighth notes on either side. He fires off his Bad blaster as Ventura and JR openly debate his sexuality. Bad announces the greatest bikini contest of all times. He explains it's a three-part contest. There's going to be evening gowns, bathing suits, and itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny bikinis. People can vote via 900 number, or, if in the arena, by applause because they already have your money. (laughs) He brings out Missy Hyatt in a silver and white outfit, and she takes a walk. Then Medusa reluctantly comes out, having apparently confused evening gowns for wedding dresses, complete with wearing a veil. (laughs) The uh, Norse woman warrior ponytail is cool, though. It is, yeah. Bad appears to briefly forget Tony's last name as he throws to Tony... Shivane. (laughs) (laughs) and Eric Bischoff. But first, JR breaks in to reiterate the voting rules. 1-900-909-9900. It's not quite the same without Mean Gene rattling that off. No. JR also builds up the upcoming Great American Bash featuring Sting versus Vader for the world title. 
And now it's time for Tony and Eric. Tony builds up the upcoming Simmons versus Taylor match, and Eric says Taylor is psyched up and ready. Tony notes that Simmons received the key to the city of Tallahassee, Florida that very day. First off, it's the bikini contest that begins with an evening gown contest? Well, yeah, as one does. I, I don't see a narrative flow here at all. Out on the beach, you know, sometimes you have weddings or, or, uh, or other occasions requiring, you know, fancy dress. Well, Medusa was dressed for that, yeah. Yeah, she was. That, see, see, that's the thing. is It's Medusa's wedding and Missy Hyatt is in attendance. Oh, okay. So the other thing that I find funny about it is, so this lady walks up with a microphone to give to John to be bad. It's one of the random attendants from earlier. And she's wearing a bikini. Yes. So one bikini hands a microphone to a guy to begin a bikini contest where it starts with two women wearing evening gowns. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Bible just discusses now very briefly. So Ventura's logic is that Johnny B. Bad, who he thinks is not straight, is biased in this contest. Is that that basically the gist of it? He he says that at some point. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's like the opposite of how that should work, I would think. Assuming we're we're going into that train of thought, he's not at all distracted by staring at them. Yeah. If, in the normal way. If, if you that, were not sexually attracted yeah, to yeah. women, you would be able to judge purely on the fashion. Yeah, and, and, exactly. Yeah. So, if anything, he's, he's the least biased person they could have gotten. Yeah, you would think so, yeah. Using Matera's own logic, it makes no sense. The last thing I'll say is I will give credit for Medusa at least because she's in well, it's supposed to be a bikini contest. He's like thinking, trying to think, how do we act like a heel in a bikini contest? Yes. The answer is cover myself up in every way I possibly can. Yeah. So fair fighter for at least trying to stay in character, not just be you know be mad in a bikini, essentially. Yeah. As it often happens. It, one does wonder why you participated in the first place if you so blatantly didn't want to do it, but. Just yeah. to beat Missy Hyatt or something, basically. I guess so, yeah. They didn't obviously wrestle, but they, they sort of had a war of words and the buildup on the shows to this. Yeah. Our second match is the Taylor-made man, Terry Taylor, versus the All-American Ron Simmons with referee Bill Alfonso. Recently on a show we covered a while back, the U.S. tag champions of Terry Taylor and Greg Valentine lost their U.S. tag titles. After that, they quickly broke up. Around the same time, Taylor tried to sort of rebound here, and he went after Simmons, who at this point is an up-and-coming star, and is sort of marked for a high position, so it makes sense. You prove you can beat him and take him out, you can sort of take his spot, essentially. Now, mind you, there's no promos where he says this. This is me inferring, so that's as much work as they put into the building's matchup. <laughs> Taylor has a very clear Eye of the Tiger ripoff for his theme. Yes. Simmons is absolutely huge. It's kind of weird that they didn't build up his connection to FSU, though, really heavily, because he doesn't wear FSU's school colors for his ring gear or anything. No, he doesn't, yeah. You know, Pillman, a former Bengals player, wears tiger stripes in his uh, outfit. Come on, Ron, don't you want to show some school spirit? Exactly, yeah. Jesse questions if the key to the city unlocks the bank. I do like that JR points out that he also had the key to the city yes. as the mayor of a, of a town. He should know how it works. He probably gave the key to the city at at least one person, I would think, while mayor. Presumably. Simmons easily overpowers Taylor, who can't even move him on hip toss attempts. When Taylor does manage to whip him to the corner, but turns away, 
Simmons nails him with three-point stance charges, but Taylor dumps him to the ramp where Simmons atomic drops him and hurls him back in over the ropes. JR notes that if he did that from inside to out, that would be a DQ, but the reverse is not the case for some reason. It's the same, same distance. Yeah. Simmons works the ribs, including an elevated, and then sadly, standard, bear hug. It doesn't long, at least, as Taylor pokes the eyes to escape. Taylor dodges a three-point stance charge, and Simmons lands on the ramp, so Taylor is able to start wearing him down, eventually earning two counts with a flipping neckbreaker and a backbreaker. Taylor nicely sells the ribs the whole time. Mm-hmm. Does a good job at that throughout this match. He does, yeah. They trade blows, and Simmons hits a spine buster, a double-handed choke slam, a back body drop, and a shoulder block. Taylor dodges another back body drop, but Simmons nails a high-velocity power slam for the three-count and the win. After raising Simmons' hand, Alfonso goes to check on Taylor and happens to touch around his ribs, and Taylor brilliantly sells it due to the bear hug earlier. Oh, nice, yeah. Great subtle work by Taylor there. He did not forget his injury after the match. Uh, thoughts on this one? This was a pretty good match. It's a great example of how you can get a more experienced veteran wrestler like Taylor at this point with a wrestler like Simmons, who is very talented, you know, it's got the, all the natural gifts you want in a wrestler. But obviously, he's not been wrestling that long at this point. It's been a few years. Especially not as a singles guy. He's been in Doom and stuff. Exactly. So I imagine Taylor and Gorva, the producer backstage, really laid the match out for Simmons, I would think. So it's interesting because technically, it looks like Ron is basically running the match, but I'm I'm guessing it was laid out for him, which is fine. That's how that works. I would think at that point, you would... You would want the more experienced dude to be putting things together. Yeah, no, absolutely. To your point, I liked how we sold everything. I will say he clearly jumps over both of the low tackles yes. that Simmons does. He's a little bit early on taking yeah. those, yeah. He just literally does a somersault over the dives. <laughs> it's zero contact. It's pretty funny. Yes. The other thing that's be a recurring thing you'll notice about the show is most sane people, I say it with a caveat for a later match, don't like taking bumps on the outside of the ring area because it now has no mats. Yes. So... You make a nice drinking game of this show where people get thrown through the front ropes onto the ramp. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that in the show. They they all love the elevated entrance ramp as much as I do, in part because it prevents them from taking really, really hard bumps onto the outside of the ring. Yes. Again, any sane person would do that. <coughs> Cactus Jack. <laughs> yes, that was the implication. As a whole, though, um, it's not really much more than the squash match. There's a brief bit where Taylor's in control, but it's clearly a let's make Ron Simmons look really good match, which is not a bad thing at all. Yeah. There's just not a lot of nuance to it, really. Yeah, I thought this was a nice power versus technique and cheating story. Anytime Taylor tries to match Simmons strength for strength, he gets batted aside with ease, but he's able to use leverage, tricks, misdirection, and pure wrestling skill to get the advantage from time to time. He does so well, it could almost be taken as a heroic underdog performance. Mm hmm. Fortunately, Ron Simmons' great mix of power and charisma make him very easy to like. And Taylor does a good job of being villainous, arrogant, and despicable to avoid getting too much sympathy, even when he's doing a terrific job selling those ribs. Except for that bear hug, and it wasn't super long, this made for a fun contest that gives both guys' respective talents and styles really well. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Neither man had tag team partners at this point, so they weren't involved in the Clash show or the subsequent pay-per-view. Oh, okay. That said, there is some important news that will happen for Ron Simmons between now and Halloween Havoc. In August 1992, they would hold a raffle on a show because the challenger for the world title was injured, 
and the champion needed a person to fight that night. The winner of the definitely real and not at all planned raffle was Ron Simmons, <laughs> who had gone to win the world title of that show, making history for wrestling. Yes. Yeah. First black WCW champion, correct? Correct. There's questions about whether he's the first ever world champion. There's some debate over what count and what doesn't count and whether you got regional belts, but essentially, yes. Okay, cool. JR is with Ron Simmons. A fan behind them holds up a sign saying, Hulk who? Sting rules. Notably, however, Hogan is actually not world champion in the WWF at this point. That would be Randy Savage, who won it at WrestleMania 8 from Ric Flair during Flair's WWF period. Uh, that's true, yeah. All right, thanks very much, Jesse the Body Ventura. Ron, tremendous victory. What a power slam. You really snapped it off. And I want to tell you something. In the last several weeks, I've never seen you look better. I've never seen you more focused than you have been. I know you've got big problems with Harley Race and the Super Invader, but I also know what your ultimate goal has to be. Jim Ross, my ultimate goal is just like it's been in my lifetime. That's to be the best that I can be at everything I do. Ever since I come in this world, people have placed the odds against me. I'm telling you, I'm living proof that you can beat the odds. For all these little people out here, for all those people that are watching TV, no matter what color you are, no matter what color, nationality you are, no matter what poverty level you're at, if you're willing to work hard and got the guts to get off your butt to do something in this world, you can be the best too. Just like Ron Simmons to go be the world champion. And what a, what a way to start off Beach Blast. Let's go back up, ladies and gentlemen. Ron Simmons has the absolute best voice in pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, the bass. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That is a voice that makes you sit up and pay attention. <laughs> it is, yeah. He has a nice inspirational speech here, too, turning things from a discussion of his future plans to encouragement of his fans like a good proper baby face. Mm-hmm. He does slip in a nod at the end to him going for the world title, and of course he'll go on to win it in August of this year, as you said. Yeah. He has a good, high-intensity, encouraging promo here, I think. Oh, absolutely. It reminds me a lot of like the Mr. T stuff. Yes, yeah. But all, all positive ways. He would come out, you know, he talks about, yeah, rising above your status in life and, you know, being the best you can. It's all, it's all a good message, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like when um, faces will turn... Uh, a discussion from just what they can do to succeed to actually being like an encouraging aspect for their fans as well. That's the best thing for a baby face, right? Is like, not just I'm going to win because I'm so courageous or anything, but going beyond that and saying, here's the kind of life choices you can make to be successful. Here's if I can do it, anybody can. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. I, I, that's the best expression of being a good guy that you're not just about yourself. You're about everyone else. Agreed. Yeah. Our third match is Marcus Bagwell versus Greg the Hammer Valentine. Referee is Mike Atkins. So this actually goes back a long ways, although, again, it's not a storyline they don't get a lot of attention for, just because it's not people who lie on the card. But back in February of this year, as part of the feud with Taylor and Bagwell, Valentine actually made his debut in WCW and joined Force with Taylor, obviously becoming U.S. Tag Team Champion for a while. So during that time, Bagwell and often Tom Zink would join up and try to win the tag titles from them, but never quite succeeding. So this actually is a multi-month feud. It's just it's also not featured heavily as like any of the major stories on this show. 
So it's kind of a shame. It is long running, but also not exactly in focus. It's good to know that even in like the less highlighted stuff, though, they are doing things over a longer period at this yeah. point, rather than everything being, oh, this came up last week. Yeah. <laughs> People, you know, backstage, they, they are mad and start fighting. Yeah. I will say if it helps ease the pain a bit for uh, Taylor and Valentine losing their US tag titles, they'd be deactivated within a month of this show. So long term, they didn't really lose that much. Yeah. I guess you could say they, they at least got to uh, lose them legitimately instead of just having them, you know, stripped because they no longer existed. Yeah, I think they're the last team actually to lose or gain the title on pay-per-view. So that is something for them. Yeah. Okay. Because there's one more title change that happened, but happens on like worldwide, I think. The future buff Bagwell gets a decent little rock theme. Valentine, in nice blue and silver robe, gets the same Eye of the Tiger ripoff as Taylor. They may not be tag champs anymore, but they're sharing an entrance theme at least. That's nice. JR builds this up as a promising rookie versus an experienced veteran. Bagwell uses speed to repeatedly counter Valentine. In an odd spot, Bagwell catches a Valentine kick, then lets go to land strikes, then grabs the leg again to spin Valentine for an atomic drop and drop kicks. I kind of feel like they were supposed to do that on the first leg grab, but somebody screwed it up. Yeah, there's a bit early gone. I think they're a bit out of sync, just getting in motion together, but otherwise, yeah. Yeah, they, they cover it well. Oh yeah, no, they, yeah. Early on, there's definitely an issue of being on the same page, I think, yeah. Valentine rolls out to recover, then gets back in and takes over with big strikes and a backbreaker. Bagwell dodges a second rope elbow drop, but Valentine dodges a knee drop and Bagwell hurts his leg. Valentine works the leg and goes for the figure four, but Bagwell inside cradles him for two and earns further two counts with an awkward float over on a scoop slam into a roll-up, a backslide, a suplex, and a back body drop. Bagwell struggles to stand on his injured leg, and his knee gives out on a leapfrog. Bagwell manages to block a punch and return fire, but Valentine counters a headlock with a shinbreaker and slaps on the figure four leg lock for the submission victory. JR builds up Bagwell's determination to get that far, but says with the leg damage he'd sustained, there wasn't anything he could do to escape that. Thoughts on this one? It's interesting that these, this match and then the last match come in sequence, because it's essentially a reverse or inverse, maybe, of the previous match. Because it's the same story. It's young, up-and-coming rookie. More rookie, in this case, for Bagwell. He's wrestling for, like, a little over a year, I think, at this point. I forget exactly. Yeah, hilariously, at some point, I think Jesse or JR calls him the former rookie. I'm like, he's he's not that long from starting still. Yeah, maybe in the sense that he might have he might have won, like, rookie of the year in their so. polling or something, but still. Yeah, how, I don't know what the timeline is when you stop being a rookie in a sport in general. It's yeah. always a gray area, for sure. But yeah, so I mean, the effect of the previous match was let's build Braun Simmons against this guy. You can work a match with him really well and make him look good. In this case, there's still a little of that because obviously Bagwell gets his hope spots and gets his advantages briefly. But it's definitely about making Valentine seem like a real threat, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Not in the way that, again, it's not a squash match on Bagwell, but it's definitely more of a highlight of Valentine in the way the match is laid out, I think. I feel like it's still a highlight for Bagwell in a, um, this guy's very experienced, look how well the rookie did. No, I, I can see it from that point of view. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because we said before, there's not really any real issues other than this early parts where they seem like they're jockeying for position a bit, like with the, with the foot issue. But as a whole, it, it's a pretty basic match. They clearly knew what Bagwell was capable of at this point. He could do all the basic, he could the ropes, you know, he's got the back pride drop and everything. Valentine, for his part, does bump for him pretty well. So it's not like Valentine doesn't act like he's a challenge or anything, but he def- it's definitely 
far more in his favor than mm-hmm. the previous match was in, in Taylor's favor. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm seeing that parallel because, again, former tag champions as of like a month ago, and then in a straight back-to-back singles match with rookies. Yeah, fair enough. The only thing I was thinking about, let's see more on the, on the rewatch. I feel like with Ric Flair being gone, they're really pushing Valentine. As like Ric Flair, you get the same vibe like it? No. I mean, I mean, he's always done the robe and the figure right. thing, but... They're really leading into it a lot more, it feels like. We need somebody that can do the figure four really well. And, well, Greg, you're, you're, you're our man. Well, and think about the timing as well. So, I mean, January 1992 was, obviously, Flair left before that, but that's his big showcase. That's the World Rumble match mm-hmm. where he wins the title and all that. Within a month, here's Greg Valentine wearing the robes, again, like he did before, but definitely more of that. He's doing chops and he's doing all the leg workover spots. So it's not like they fully changed Greg Valentine to be Flair, but it feels like they're definitely pushing him as the Flair kind of character. It's like it, we haven't actually lost this performance style. We don't have the same character doing it, but we have this performance style, the the good leg work and, and everything, yeah. It, it's not a one-to-one thing like when they made fake Diesel and fake Razor Ramon in WWF. But it, or Buddy Landell coming in and being like, I am the real nature boy or yeah. whatever, yeah. Which led to zero, zero match between Flair and Landell. Yeah. It's amazing. I think Valentine, it's, it's always been something that he's been doing, but I agree that they maybe highlight him a little bit more. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing. He's still a good performer. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable match. Bagwell shows plenty of young babyface fire, and Valentine makes a good, reliable heel for him to go up against. It definitely helps that the match has a good focus on the work on the knee, and Bagwell does a surprisingly excellent job of selling the injured knee, really letting it impact a lot of his movements and stall and delay him quite naturally. Despite his loss, he got to look good here and showcase what he could do. So yeah, like you said, a minor flub or two aside, I rather liked this one. Yeah, it was perfectly fine. Yeah, Bagwell and Tom Zink would rejoin forces as uh, tag team partners and try, unfortunately, unsuccessfully on the Clash of Champions 19 show to make it onto the Great American Bash show. His consolation prize, losing a dark match to the Super Invader. <laughs> the Super Invader is Hercules Hernandez, a.k.a. Assassin number... Is he one or two? Is he two, right? Uh, two, yes. Yeah, that's number two. Yeah, one was the, the cuddly one. Yes, as John. As, yeah, as, as John said, the cuddly one and then the, the clearly in shape uh, one. Yes. yes. JR talks up the upcoming Falls Count Anywhere match, Cactus Jack versus Sting, and shows footage of a prior similar match between Van Hammer and Cactus Jack, where they ended up outside the building. JR and Jesse really highlight that this match could go anywhere, even outdoors, even away from the arena entirely. Mm-hmm. Our fourth match is Cactus Jack versus Sting in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Referee for this one is Bill Alfonso. So seemingly out of the blue, Cactus Jack suddenly targets Sting and declares him his enemy. Famously, is a big segment where Sting is offered a gift and he goes on stage in this big box and Cactus Jack breaks out of the box and attacks him. It's highlighted really heavily in Big Foley's first book, which is really good. <laughs> in interviews, he would talk about why he targeted Sting. It's the usual uh, kind of thing with the crazy uh, outsider character. Sting is everything he wanted, you know, the looks, the success, and the fame. Which is weird, because he clearly also doesn't want that, but it's kind of weird. Like, it's actually just generally weird, so I guess you accept yeah. it. Yeah. You can wear face paint if you want to, Jack. I mean, it's not that hard. That's true, yeah, yeah. No one's stopping him. It's also leads to a very interesting promo they, they have that happens on Saturday night, about two weeks before the show. Jack's interviewed on stage, comes on stage, talks to Dara about what he's going to do. 
The story is that Sting's ribs were injured in the original attack. He did his diving cack stubble at him on the floor, so really selling that. Sting, of course, says he's fine. You know, he's the baby face to fight through whatever it is. Actress Jack brings out a small wooden box, like a little box he like fruit c- comes in and you find in a store. Decides to do a falling headbutt to it. Yes. The kind that like like Simone wrestlers do where you just sort of fall and hit the guy. <sighs> yeah. It goes as well as you would think. Holy, what the heck? <laughs> this is on the this is on the wooden stage, mind you. <laughs> yeah. So he just does a dropping headbutt to a to a little crate, does break part of it, tries to get up and cannot get up because he you know concussed himself yeah a little bit and he just kind of accepts that he's sitting down for the rest of this bit which they didn't deserve leave he goes this is your ribs and he hits it and then clearly knocks himself out a little bit what were you thinking mick i mean you could done the elbow drop for one you want to hurt yourself i don't know why the headbutt's the thing he had to do elbow drop leg drop smack it with a chair yeah no no i gotta i gotta headbutt it <laughs> apparently <laughs> it's a very interesting choice for his part, Sting, besides trying to say he's not injured and in the way he's willing to face Cactus, he's also made it clear that he knows the real reason, which is, of course, Vader is next in line in town for the title. So it's awfully suspicious that suddenly a guy who's had no history with Sting like wants to kill him, essentially, in, right before a match with Vader. It's a little suspicious, to say the least. Indeed, as Jack enters, JR proposes that he's been hired to take Sting out, all but saying that Vader and Race want to use Jack to weaken Sting for Vader's later title challenge. Jack waits for Sting on the ramp. Sting comes out in a bright, shiny, silvery robe, looking bemused to see Jack sitting there on the ramp. Sting is wearing the title belt here, but this match is non-title, lending credence to JR's mercenary theory. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you wouldn't want the mercenary to win the title if your goal is to win the title from the guy. Right. I will say, in all the bits I saw, I didn't see anything where Cactus says, oh, yeah, I don't care for the title. He just makes it clear he wants to take Sting out, and it's just not title. They brawl on the ramp, and Sting gets a backslide for one, and a one-handed bulldog for two, but Jack dodges a stinger splash, and Sting crotches himself on the ropes. Sting rolls to the floor, and Jack gets two counts with an elbow drop from the apron to the concrete, neck breaker, and a sunset flip from the apron to the concrete. <clears throat> Jack limps as landing on concrete like that could not have felt good. Yeah. But the first one, he lands on his hip. Mm -hmm. So the one leg definitely has a lot of impact from that. Yeah. And then pretty much most of his spine takes the impact from the sunset flip. He hits hard. No, yeah. It's very bad for your coccyx to do that. Yeah. Sting smacks Jack into the barricades, and JR claims that would normally be a DQ. I cannot think of a single time I have ever seen a wrestler DQ'd for that. It's apparently an official rule. They do it all the time. Yeah, not in front of the ref, I guess. Actually, I called this a false count anywhere match, but I did not clarify. This is an ODQ match. <laughs> right, right, yeah. This is essentially a street fight, yeah. Sting dumps the charging Jack over the barricade and gets two with a suplex amongst the crowd. Finally in the ring, Sting catches a Jack kick, but Jack lands a DDP-style spinning clothesline, then beats him up, working in a body scissors to Jesse's surprise. Jesse is, is, is shocked that Jack is actually wrestling. <laughs> yeah, no. Understandable, yeah. Jack makes the mistake of slapping Sting. Never a good idea. And Sting powers free, but Jack rakes the eyes and clothesline Sting and himself to the floor. Jesse dubs the company World Championship Street Fight. WCSF? Yeah. It's better than WCTTW from New Blood Rising, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah. 
Jack lands several chair shots. Two counts for a sting belly-to-back suplex, Jack falling on top after Superman Doomsday simultaneous punches, Mm -hmm. and Sting rolling them over for his own pin. Jack catches a stinger splash and dumps Sting onto the barricade, but his knee gives out on a pile driver and he falls sideways so Sting avoids the impact. I'm not totally sure if that was intentional or not. I'm yeah, I'm not sure in that one. That doesn't feel like that's part of a planned spot. Yeah. Sting dodges a second rope elbow drop, and Jack eats concrete. On the ramp, Sting lands his own chair shots, including one to the knee, and tries for the scorpion deathlock, but Jack rolls sideways and they fall off the ramp. Back on, Jack hits the double-arm DDT for two, but Sting clotheslines him down and hits a diving clothesline from the top turnbuckle to the ramp, as it's an ODQ match, Yeah, for the three count and the win. Brilliant ending spot there. Mm-hmm. That required both of them to be in exactly the right position to avoid them falling off the ramp one way or another. Oh, yeah. Sure. And good confidence on Sting on that jump, too. Mm-hmm. Sting kneels on the ramp with his title as Jack squeals in rage. It's a very distressing noise. Yes, yes. Thoughts on this one? It's a very good hard-hitting match, even if the hardest offense is done by Mick Foley to himself. I, I, I will say, in having, having read all, all his books, really more interested in his previous books, because they're about this time. He talks about how he his weird mindset had come up with doing a sunset flip to the outside, especially when they take the mats away. He doesn't know why he thought that was a good idea in hindsight. <laughs> He's pretty coy about the whole elbow spot, which is not great for him, but I guess that one's the most direct because you have to take an impact before you do just essentially a, a light roll up on a guy. You could argue at least doing the elbow, you're hitting him pretty heavily in your right, yeah. In K believes it makes that makes more sense than that, especially because there's at least one match we saw where it's not false guy anywhere. He still does that. Right, yeah. Yeah, it makes no sense if there's no pinfalls outside because it's not an impact move. Yeah. It'd be one thing if the guy was also on the apron and you did a sunset flip powerbomb. Yeah, But sure. that's not what this is. This is sunset flip, lightly roll the guy up. Yeah, it's, it's an odd choice. Um, that part aside, I think they do a really good job of telling a story with Sting here. He's definitely more aggressive in this match. He sort of sees Cactus's energy in his mindset and beats that pretty well, I think. Yes. Once they get outside, he sort of leans in, okay, we're doing this way, and that is a suplex on the floor, and fighting him outside is a really nice touch. This one spot's a little silly. They clearly wanted to do the run off the ropes and back body drop spot. Mm-hmm. So he has to whip Foley towards the ropes on the outside and then back again. The little dozy doe spot. Right, 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 yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't look silly per se but it's it's weird that you're throwing towards the ropes just to bring him back there <laughs> i know i couldn't just run a few feet and gotten thrown but <laughs> needed the extra running i guess at the same time it's creative for working around the environment room but it's just a weird choice i guess we talked about before when we originally watched it whether the ending spot where they're going for the death lock and they fall out of off the ramp is a botch I feel comfortable enough saying I think it's actually part of the story. I feel like it is, yeah. I mean, they handle it pretty well af- right after that, and it's a good way to get out of the deathlock. I could see someone looking at it and thinking that's a bot, but regardless, they go from that to the actual ending of the match quite well, I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of the little things I really appreciate the more you watch wrestling. So, like, Foley, for instance, he has to get up, he has to be dazed for Sting to go up with the ropes. He's got to get a little closer for Sting to hit him. Mm-hmm. But he's got to make it obvious that he's not just walking closer to be in range of being struck. Yeah. So it's a good job of sort of like, oh, I'm going to feed it. Like, oh, I'm going to get this guy. Oh, no, he hit me. Yeah. 
watching so much modern wrestling where there's all these spots where eight guys stand in a big pile and pretend to punch each other while looking up, constantly checking for a guy about to dive. It's, it's refreshing to see little things like this that seem far more realistic. Yeah, I think both of them doing a, a tremendous job with that ending spot. Foley does a great job of getting right in position without looking like he's getting in position mm-hmm. at all. And Sting, again, what he's having to do is jump from the top rope over a gap yeah. onto a ramp without going too far and landing in another gap. It's a fairly wide ramp, but still, like that's a very limited landing zone that you've got. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of people do top rope moves and be off by like, you know, three or four feet. Yes, for sure. So he has to be precise on this thing, and it's it's an impressive jump. It's a good thing Ahmed Johnson's not doing it, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought this was an excellent, brutal brawl with Cactus Jack in his element and Sting nicely showing that he can very much hold his own in a hardcore match. I do wish Jack had toned down those falls on the concrete floor from high up, but other than the discomfort of watching that, these two had a good, hard-hitting contest, and as the commentators pointed out, both showed that they could work with the other's preferred style just as well as their own. Mm-hmm. There's some very nice creative spots, like Jack's counters of the stinger splash, the fall from the ramp on the deathlock, and the excellent diving clothesline to the ramp for the finish, and those made it a very fun watch. It's unfortunate that the commentators spent so much time building up that this could end up outside the arena itself. Yeah. As that might make someone feel a little bit disappointed that it didn't. No, I can see that, yeah. But it didn't need to. It's a great match without that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, they made a point. It's all falls got anywhere on the Gulf Coast. Yeah, and they really, I mean, they showed the video of the prior match that went outside the arena. Yeah. And JR and Jesse are continually talk about, oh, this could end up anywhere. This could, could go outside. This could leave the, the city, you know, or something. And it doesn't do that. So you're just, you're cheapening the match. Mm-hmm. So not not the best bit of commentary there by those. The two. other thing is, too, if you look back, that video they show of him and Van Hammer, they're also at that point pushing this angle with Abdul the Butcher. Right. Where they're feuding and he ends up helping Jack. And that doesn't come into play at all in this match. Mm-hmm. I get they wanted to show a sample of Cactus, but it's a weird to have that part in there and then have no Yeah, was that it. the only video that you had? Yeah, right? Yeah. I guess they didn't want to show him headbutting the uh, the wooden crate on the outside. Yes. Yeah, it just gives a, a misleading image of what the match is going to be. And then, thankfully, the match is awesome. But yeah, yeah. I can see someone saying, like, oh, they didn't actually go outside, you know, and feeling a little bit disappointed because of that. I will say being so conditioned to how shows are presented now, I almost feel disappointed that they didn't do a thing where they cut to the back to show Harley Race Invader like, looking at a weird angle of the television, yes. going, yes, our plan's working, or something like that. I'm I'm happy that is implied, but a bit I'm just used to that, I guess. Yeah. The modern thing. As noted, world champion Sting would defend this title against Vader at the Great American Bash. I think we can all agree, no matter who actually wins the match, anyone has to fight Vader is not a winner. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh that's that I'm sure is brutal. Mm-hmm. JR throws to Tony and Eric, and they build up Sting's fighting spirit. Eric says, this proves Sting will take on any challenger in any kind of match. It's not quite accurate, since technically Jack wasn't a challenger in the title sense, at least. Yeah, very true. Tony turns to the upcoming Iron Man match, and Eric notes that Rick Rude has a weight advantage, but with this being a guaranteed 30-minute match, the weight could work against Rude in terms of stamina. So, is it just me, or is this whole formatting a little weird? Not our formatting, to be clear, the show's formatting, where the commentators call a match, and then we cut to these two other people at the front of the ramp discussing that, and then back to them again. They've done that on a few shows. It's it's 
not a common approach, but there are certain shows that they uh, do this like split commentary versus announcing yeah. duties thing. And yeah, it always comes off a little tiny bit awkward. It's not awful. No, no, it's not. It's, it's just weird. Yeah. yeah, it just feels like I don't quite get why you couldn't just have JR and Jesse do that and have Tony and Eric just do interviews. Right. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe maybe they were worried about with Jesse needing to be involved in some of the other skits on the night that Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It, it's not a terrible thing. It's just it feels weird that there's two other people also calling this show in random bursts. And yeah. And the most time they're not actually interviewing people. If JR interviews Ron Simmons. That's true. Yeah. Eric doesn't interview and JR doesn't interview. Tony doesn't do one. Jesse doesn't do one. I think the most notable difficulty with it is they sometimes end up rehashing the same points yeah. as each other. And uh, you feel like the show would be just a tad stronger with just one team. Mm-hmm. Our fifth match is Ravishing Rick Rude versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in a 30-minute Iron Man match. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. I think this is the first time we've had an Iron Man match on the show. I believe so, yeah. So just to briefly cover that, an Iron Man match is a match with a time limit, often 30 to 60 minutes, in this case 30, which doesn't end at the first fall. Instead, competitors get a point for each pinfall, submission, or other type of victory, and the one with the most points when time expires wins. They are tremendous fun in the wrestling video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking with the, the name they chose for this, the Iron Man thing, assuming pretty safely that this ends up on either or both of our best of like the series matches, I feel like re-gimmicking that this with the name alone has so much potential. <laughs> I don't give away good ideas yet, but I'm just, just thinking about that. I have so many, so many thoughts already. It should be called a Captain America match. Right. He can do this all day, you know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so this is part of a long-standing issue between Rude and Steamboat, which comes ahead in this match. Briefly before this, Rude insinuated some things about Steamboat and his family, obviously going after Steamboat being the family man, as we'll see, especially in his intro. So it's one of the things he just does to antagonize him a little more, implying that he's not as good as he actually is. Gotcha. On top of that, he also... I think it's mostly kayfabe, but broke his nose. Ooh. His steamboat keeps working matches just with his nose taped over, so I, I would assume that he wasn't really broken, otherwise you wouldn't be working with it, just tape on it. Yeah. I would hope that, at least. Unless you're a big foley, which is probably would do. <laughs> True. You wouldn't want to tape it up, then they'd hit you there. Yeah, so it's part of a bigger thing where it's the Dangerous Alliance who we saw at Russell War 92, the previous show, against Steamboat and his allies. As part of this, Steamboat was denied a U.S. title match by Rick Rude for basically no reason. He just didn't want to fight him, obviously, as a heel, let's screw his right. Instead, they come with the idea of doing this 30-man Iron Man match to prove who the better man is. Notably, this is not a title match, which is weird. It's a little odd. Like The implication here kind of is that Steamboat has to prove himself as a worthy contender to Rude by means of this Iron Man match. Right. But yeah, it's a little odd that you do something as amazing as an Iron Man match, but it's not for a title. Correct. Rude comes out in a nice blue robe and does wear his U.S. title belt, though this is a non-title match. Rude gets a microphone and calls the crowd fat, out-of-shape, beach-loving bozos. He tells them he's about to show them what a real sexy man is like. Rude's tights this time feature images of him flexing. We talked before people have really interesting rear gear and wonder like what happened to all that. Like, oh my god, he is yeah. 
all his like long tights, they're all they're all stylized. Yeah, he does some amazing ones over his career. I don't know who has all or most of them or any of those, but I'd be interested to see, like, because some sort of collection for that kind of stuff would be amazing. Absolutely, yeah, that's that would be great. Steamboat enters with his wife and little son in the absolute best babyface entrance ever. Mm-hmm. Dad and son both wear awesome dragon-themed G's. Rude advances, so Steamboat quickly ushers his son back out through the ropes and charges Rude. Jesse claims that Steamboat tried to use his kid to defend himself from Rude. Yes. <laughs> good, good twisting of reality there, Jesse. Yeah, that's nice. Steamboat lands a gut buster and works the ribs with punches, kicks, shoulder blocks, a sideways bear hug, a neat bow and arrow hold, a Boston crab that he darn near turns into the lion tamer, knee strikes, and a vertical suplex drop. Jesse calls him sadistic, like Dr. No in Goldfinger. <laughs> Do- Dr. No was in Dr. No, Jesse. I'm, I'm guessing that Jesse probably mixed him up with Odd Job. Yeah, yeah. He just quickly adjusted to in James Bond, it's like James Bond movie. Right? Yeah, yeah. Steamboat earns two with a fist drop, but Rude lands a solid knee to the jaw as he charges, pulls Steamboat's tights, and gets a three count. Mm-hmm. Or one to zero for Rude at 22-18 remaining. Rude hits the Rude Awakening for another three. That's two to zero for Rude at 21 minutes, 21 seconds remaining. He lands a top rope knee drop, intentionally getting DQ'd. That puts it two to one in Rude's favor, with 20 minutes and 18 seconds remaining. But Rude immediately inside cradles Steamboat for three. So it's three to one for Rude, Mm -hmm. with 19 minutes and 49 seconds remaining. JR and Jesse say getting DQ'd to deal heavy damage might have been a smart tactical play. Rude works around a camel clutch and tries to dance, but can't because his ribs hurt. Jesse praises his bravery. He's a, he's a brave soul for t- yeah, trying to get the, so the awesome. greatest things in their lives. Yeah. Steamboat breaks free with an electric chair drop, but Rude gets his knees up on a splash and gets multiple two counts with a swinging neck breaker, then slaps on a reverse chin lock. 15 minutes remain. Steamboat escapes with elbows, but Rude hits a pile driver for two, then tries a tombstone pile driver, but Steamboat walks on his hands up Rude's body to turn it over and hits his own for three. It's three to two in favor of Rude, with 12 minutes and 21 seconds remaining. Rude pulls the tights to send Steamboat to the turnbuckle and goes up top, but Steamboat superplexes him down, which JR says is legal because both men were on the top. Sure, whatever. Yeah. That gets two. Rude gets two off a simultaneous clothesline as we cross the 10-minute mark. But Steamboat bridges out and backslides him for three. They're tied up, three to three, with nine minutes and 38 seconds remaining. Two counts off a Steamboat inside cradle, flipping pin and crossbody, Rude jawbreaker into a face slam, and scoop slam into a forearm drop. Rude pokes the eyes and chokes Steamboat, then goes for the Rude awakening, but Steamboat powers out and lands his own for two. Five minutes remain. Two counts for Steamboat's suplex and back suplex, but Rude gets a sleeper. Steamboat repeatedly rams him into the turnbuckles, but Rude holds on, even kicking Steamboat's arms down when he reaches for the ropes. Sweat pours from both men to the mat. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see it like a waterfall. Yes. Two minutes remain, but Steamboat will not go down. One minute left, and Steamboat manages to walk up the turnbuckle, kicks off, and lands on top of Rude for three, putting us at four to three in Steamboat's favor with only 35 seconds to go. 
Rude freaks out. Oh, yeah. Desperate, Rude gets two counts with a clothesline, shoulder block, another clothesline, an inside cradle, and a slam. But time expires, giving Steamboat the win, four to three. An exhausted Steamboat rolls outside, and Anderson goes to help him stand up. Jesse nicely attributes that final pinfall on Rude to the rib damage that Steamboat did back at the beginning, as that forced him to break his hold on the impact and let Steamboat get a solid pin. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? This is absolutely a great showcase for both men. We're really spoiled by getting Steamboat on the show again, which is really happy to have him back on. So good to see So him. many shows without Steamboat and finally return is great. One of the best things of coming back to this time period is seeing him in matches again. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting way they do this match, too. I try to think about this match like outside of an Iron Man match, because obviously so much is built around this format. Like, Just imagine, so imagine watching a regular show and you get up to the first pinfall where Rude does a knee countering the dive into the corner. Imagine then, like, that's a regular match. That just ends a match. That, w- that would be weird, yeah. That'd be very jarring. Mind you, it's a good impact, and it's a great story that he's he just puts a knee up and blocks a guy being hyper-aggressive against him. But, right. But, yeah, just especially now as a regular match, you suddenly get, like, a seven-and-a-half, eight-minute match with Steamboat and Rude. You're like, huh, that's, that's weird. It could still be good, but you'd want to see what they did with it afterwards. No, absolutely, yeah. If that's a tease for other matches, yeah, it's just funny just thinking about if that's just that itself as a match is really weird. Mm-hmm. Again, the story is great because so Steamboat is very mad about what Root's done and how he's treated him and all this stuff that's been built up all over these many months. So he works super aggressively in the first seven minutes and then it just it bites him in the butt. He could like hundred percent control in the match and then suddenly he's controlling none of the match for a long period of time. Root, for his part, works the rules really well, gets a rope break on the the Rude Awakening that to him later in the match. With the exception of attempting himself as qualified, he works around what he's allowed to do legally mm-hmm. in a really well thing. And even then, the top rope move to get qualified but get a pin thing, it's one of the things that has come up, I think, in later Iron Man matches, people copying this, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. There's the famous SmackDown match where it's Brock Lesnar and Kurt Angle. I believe it's Brock uses the Terry gets disqualified, losing a point, but then gets two pinfalls off of right. the damage, so that makes sense. Yeah, that's like Jesse and JR bring up. This is actually a strategy element in an Iron Man match that you can't do in a normal match. Mm. You can intentionally lose one point, but do such severe damage to your opponent in that time that you're able to get more points or at the very least control things. Like Root spends the next about 10 to 15 minutes still solidly in control of the match after mm-hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of those matches I think you can really watch a few times and spot little things here and there. There's so many little touches, like in the way Steamboat sells something, or that like you talk about Rude still wanting to do his pose and can't do it because his ribs are injured. There's just so many little details you could really diagram out like this. It's one of those ones where they talk about wrestling schools. They you know, they'll say, Oh, watch this match to learn how to wrestle. I don't know if this is like the match to show, but there's so much you can learn from watching this. It's absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the nuances you can pick up, spots between spots. But Steepo gets the backslide. You see him really fight for it and pull him down with the backslide. Or when he takes the knee as a counter, he just slumps on top of Rude. Yes. He grabs the ropes, getting up. It always, this is so much you could appreciate this match. It will come as a surprise to absolutely no one that I adored this match. Mm -hmm. In an impressive feat of stamina, 
These two wrestled for 30 minutes straight and included tons of fast action, hard hits, and complicated technical work. Yes, there are several points in the match with fairly lengthy holds, but they never stop working even in those, Mm -hmm. maneuvering constantly for position or struggling across the ring to make it clear that every single second of this match is a fight for advantage. Yeah. The Iron Man rules allow for really interesting tactics that you don't get in most matches, like, as we mentioned, Rude sacrificing a point to deal extreme damage to his opponent since he can just make it back up right away. They also really nicely influence the story of the match, with Rude, for instance, turning from vicious to more careful once he has a solid lead, as all he has to do is outlast Steamboat then. Mm, exactly, yeah. But then becoming absolutely desperate when he ends up down a point with only 35 seconds to go. Oh, yeah. Steamboat and Rude both sell like champs for this, with Rude making clear every little move hurts after his ribs get injured early on. And the fact that both look legitimately exhausted at the end only makes this feel more epic. Mm -hmm. To their credit, despite I'm sure being completely wiped by the end of this match, neither loses a step in precision, pulling off move after move perfectly, even in the latest stages of the match. This was one of the finest matches I have ever seen, and the only strike against it in my book is that it was not a title match. Agreed. For this level of performance, it deserved to be one. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Honestly, again, to my point about so many little things. So, for instance, there's the point where Steamboat finally gets out of the camel clutch by lifting him up the electric teardrop. Mm-hmm. He actually doesn't succeed the first time he tries it. Yes. He tries. He starts getting him up, and Rude manages to climb up the hole briefly and jump on his back and knock him down again, put him back in the hold you get the tease of the escape then you get back in the hole for long enough where you think maybe he won't do it this time then he actually does power through again yeah an iron man match allows such interesting things i mean aside from the the interesting strategy around the dq and stuff you can have things that wouldn't normally be a finish to a match be a pinfall or a submission here yeah like the knee strike as you pointed out you almost never see that happen in in a normal match no but in Iron Man match, you can do that, and it's a really shocking and cool moment. Same thing, like you can have a submission potentially happen from a move that never normally gets a submission. That's you know ones that are only used in transition spots, because that's not going to be an end of the match. Mm-hmm. It's full of areas where you can do really interesting, shocking things. If you have watched enough wrestling, you kind of get a feeling for, okay, this type of move doesn't really normally do it. Mm -hmm. This type of move normally does. A lot of matches, especially as we move towards the modern era, only end with a finisher. Mm, Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, that's the reason for the name. Sure. So it's cool to see a match like this where things can go really, really different directions. And it's kind of, it's like, it's wide open how this type of match can be done. Yeah. There's all sorts of ways that you can can do things in it. I remember when we were watching this the first time together, I was surprised how much Steamboat controlled the match so early on, so firmly. And for like seven and a half minutes, and abruptly he just takes that yeah. D and goes down. You and I were in mid-discussion about, Bob, do you think that they're having Steamboat control this for too long? And I'm just responding, and Steamboat gets kneed in the face and pinned. Yeah. I'm like, oh, or that could happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, one little thing I noticed, I don't think it's an intentional because it doesn't feel like the kind of people that would do that, but in the part where Steamboat's controlling early on and attacking him, he typically does the jumping splash of the back, which was done by the Ultimate Warrior. Oh, okay, yeah. And of course, against Rick Rude. True. I could see certain wrestlers doing that as like a, a show, of like, look, our mind's better or something. I don't think Steamboat would do that. 
I doubt it's that, but I could see it being rude saying, hey, this spot got a good reaction oh, there you go. when I fought, had my feud with Warrior. It could be a completely coincidental thing. I have no idea, but because rude didn't fall, and like, mm. that does seem suspicious. <laughs> I think you'll agree with me. Just terrific match. Oh, yeah. Probably one of the best we've done for the show. I Yeah, I appreciate it even more when I went back and rewatched it. I was looking for more details to try and to try and nitpick as you do in a match like this or any match. You look for the things that go right and go wrong. So, yeah, absolutely. So, good news. Steamboat would get another U.S. title match in January 1993. Okay. Be a bit. And not against Rick Rude. Aw. They, they do have stuff going on, but yeah. Winning this match doesn't actually get him a title match, which is kind of strange. In a lot yeah, of as we'll see it later tonight, they uh, still throw it back in his face, but... Yes. He would eventually go after Steve Austin's TV title, though, a little later in the year, around September, October, so... Oh, okay. He keeps busy. Rude and Steamboat are both in the tournament, both on Clash and then Great American Bash. Steamboat and Nikita Koloff, it's the joint U.S.-Lithuanian team, which is really funny to me. <laughs> they said Lithuania didn't field a full team, so they were allowed Steamboat to team with him. The idea was like, you know, it's, it's like Team Australia and like Team, uh, team Japan and Team America. So this, the split team is just funny because they explain it as, I guess there's not another Lithuanian wrestler they could find to wrestle with Koloff, so you can deal with Steamboat, it's okay. <laughs> and for his part, it's Rick Rude and Steve Austin involved in that. Gotcha. Curiously, even though they're both in the tournament with all these brackets, they never cross paths in the show. That's interesting. Yeah. You think, oh, we can build up this, this match as part of the tournament where these two teams face off again. But nope, they don't. It's, I mean, it's a choice they made. It's just unexpected. And now for something completely different. Yes. JR and Jesse throw to round two of the bikini contest. Jesse is still bitter. Bad is in a different outfit, gold and white this time. And this time the contest is swimsuits, but not bikinis. Medusa comes out in a biker jacket, bandana, and one-piece swimsuit. Bad declares the ladies almost as pretty as him. Missy Hyatt comes out next, and she appears to have missed the memo about this not being the bikini part of the show, as she is wearing a blue bikini. Well, he'd bring a regular-sized bikini, though. I guess that's an exception. That's true, yeah. He does describe the third part as the itsy-bitsy-teeny-weeny bikini contest. Yeah. So this is a, a bikini, but not a itsy-bitsy-teeny-weeny Yeah, it's weird bikini. because Medusa, for her part, is playing up the heel heat of not wearing a bikini in a bikini contest, even the part where she wears a jacket over her shoulders, and when she turns around, she puts it around her waist. Yes. I do like also that foreshadows her history, because she's wearing a Harley Davidson jacket. Yeah, I love, like, Road Wild suggestion four years early, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or I guess Hog Wild in that case. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> that's Bendo as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that was interesting to see, considering the series we just did, that she comes mm-hmm. out to all this biker paraphernalia. <laughs> it's also funny, too, we think about it long-term, because every match we've seen of her, we've seen a few with her now, between Hogwild and other shows she appears. Her wrestling outfit just becomes basically a bikini, right? I think I'll note that the outfit she actually comes out in as part of the bikini contest thing looks very like her actual yeah, wrestling yes, gear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's just funny to think, I will wear this. Except when I'm wrestling for like four years. Yeah. Then I'll wear it all the time. <laughs> the crowd seems in favor of Hyatt so far. JR runs over the hotline info again. one 900 he dubs this the Ultra Bikini Contest. Not sure what makes it particularly ultra, but sure. Uh, yeah. He and Jesse build up the Great American Bash, though Jesse is more interested in finding out who Ross is going to be voting for. Ross says he's making up his mind. 
Oh, I just realized there was one critique we actually had of the previous match that didn't come up. Yes. Which is that they didn't have a little screen up which said where the score was at all times. Yeah, later later on tonight, they'll have a screen up for this. Yes. But yeah, they don't have a uh, scoreboard showing during the Iron Man match, which would have been nice. They do, to be fair, for the home viewers, they have the timer yes. at the bottom of all times. But having the score on the board would be nice, like a visual. Even if it just came up for a moment when a pinfall was Yeah, sure. Caused, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Our sixth match is The Dangerous Alliance, Beautiful Bobby Eaton, Stunning Steve Austin, and No Nicknames Needed, Arn Anderson, with Paul E. Dangerously, versus Barry Windham, Nikita Koloff, and The Natural, Dustin Rhodes, in a six-man tag match. The referee for this match is Senior Referee Ole Anderson. So back on the June 13th episode of WCW Saturday Night, they brought out Ole Anderson, now he is again, you know, the senior referee of WCW. He sort of laid down the law. That means no top rope moves and for some reason no mats on the floor outside. Because men. I guess so. That's basically what they say. Like the toughest people here who won't be able to walk straight for the rest of their lives after wrestling here for a year of this. It's manly men or something. <laughs> and also, no hitting their heads against the barricade, which doesn't come up at all in this show, as you mentioned, but he simply says that is outlawed. As noted before, the Dangerous Alliance has been a, an ongoing thing for quite a while. They had their big War Games match at Russell War, which was quite good. Yes, that was nice. Between then and now, they kicked out Larry Zbysko for not cheating well enough, <laughs> which now makes him a face because he didn't like the people that kicked him out for not cheating as well as he should have. They don't do a lot with him as a good guy, to be fair. He, he wrestles, I think, Austin in one show, but he's not in this show. And he, you think putting him on the face team might be a good show of that, but no. I would I would have loved having Zabisco in this match. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who would have kicked off the team, mind you. Because yeah, like they're all good too. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, if you so got if you got a fourth heel, then having Zabisco yeah, on there too would have been good. It would at least come full circle like that. Yeah. Oh, worth noting during the build up, Barry Wyndham would actually win the TV title off Steve Austin and hold it for about a week and lose it right back to him. Oh, which they reference later as uh, Austin taking a vacation from the belt or something. Yes, Matura says. It's just kind of weird to randomly have him lose the title then just gain it right back as part of this buildup. Otherwise known as the normal situation in the year 2000. Yes, correct. It's unusual in 1992. <laughs> in the early build of this match, it was announced that they were going to bring back the WWE World Six-Man Tag Team Championship. Thus, is having this six-man team you know, match. Having a three-man team against another three-man team. Sometime between when they announced it and the show, they gave up on that and just didn't mention it. <laughs> Wow. That's why we had a six-man match, because they was going to be for titles that didn't exist and weren't brought back for the show. Wow. Forever again. Great. Referee Ole Anderson is out first. Dangerously leads his squad out next, holding the ropes for them to enter. Wyndham, Koloff, and Rhodes enter to what I believe is Wyndham's theme. Rhodes has his amazing yellow, red, and blue jacket. Oh, worth noting, Wyndham's theme is very ZZ Top. Austin and Wyndham trade holds until Wyndham takes Austin down with a second rope Japanese arm drag. Tagged to Rhodes, and after a drop kick, Austin crawls for the tag to the wrong corner. Rhodes slaps on an arm bar, but Austin gets close enough to tag Eaton. Eaton levels Rhodes with a knee strike and gets a cradle on a charge for one, then tags Arn, who challenges and slaps Koloff. That seems unwise. <laughs> Rhodes tags Koloff. Arn tries to lure Koloff into the heel corner, but Koloff is wise to that. Arn gets Koloff down and goes up top, 
but Oli reminds him that that's a DQ, and Koloff reminds him that he's waiting there with a Russian sickle. So Arn comes down. I guess Lithuanian sickle at this point. Yeah, I guess so. Koloff later hits the sickle, knocking Arn over the ropes to the floor. Eaton protests, but Oli excellently mimes throw yes, clothesline no, making sure that folks way in the back understand what's going on. Again, I still question the logic of that a bit, because you clearly oh, yeah. hit him and knocked him over there. Yeah, it it's one of those things that should totally be a DQ if the over-the-top road thing is at all, but they kind of uh, excuse it. I think JR says, like, he hit him, and then momentum took him over, rather than him intentionally chucking him over, but yeah, it's tenuous. It's not like they later do a clothesline over the top rope, and it's not a DQ later in the same match, right? I love Oli's motioning there. Yes. It's very, very clear exactly what he's doing. He's doing does perfect miming for all of it. Eaton in, and Koloff beats him up and bear hugs him, but Austin distracts Oli, and Arn frees Eaton. Arn and Eaton try a double team, but Koloff knocks them into each other and disposes of Austin too, so all retreat outside. Dangerously suggests plan number two. Arn in, and Wyndham in. Wyndham sends Arn to the turnbuckle with an atomic drop, but they knock heads. Arn goes up top with his partners distracting Oli, but Wyndham grabs Arn. Arn pokes his eyes and hits a second rope single axe handle. Wyndham hits knee strikes and a sleeper, but Arn back suplexes free, and Wyndham stumbles towards Rhodes for a great collapsing tag. Mm-hmm. Rhodes decimates all three heels with punches, a lariat, and a bionic elbow, but Arn breaks his eyes and runs him into Eaton's head. Arn and Austin trade off wearing Rhodes down as JR shells the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. This is where scores uh, show on screen showing that Medusa is ahead in the voting, 51% to 49%, so the WCW can earn more money as people desperately call in to make sure the heel doesn't win. I should call now because he's winning. I gotta stop that. Rhodes' backslide earns two, but Arn sneaks in a tag to Eaton during the backslide which technically means Oli should probably not have counted that pin, but it's a cool spot anyway. Mm-hmm. No, it is, yeah. Eaton, Austin, and Arn trade off to beat Rhodes up, earning two counts with an Eaton clothesline and Austin flying clothesline and working the arm. Classic Anderson tag work as Rhodes stuns Arn with a bionic elbow, but Arn smoothly locks his legs around Rhodes' as he falls to keep him from making a tag. Oh, yeah. That was a flashback to some of our earliest episodes there. So it can make an Oli proud in the ring, yeah. Rhodes earns two with a roll-up on Austin, and manages to run Arn into Eaton, but Austin nails a stun gun. But Rhodes lands near the face corner and tags Wyndham. JR notes that Wyndham's height let him stretch for that tag. Mm -hmm. Wyndham runs wild on the heels with punches and hip tosses, and everybody gets into brawl. Eaton keeps Koloff busy, and Arn disposes of Rhodes as Wyndham superplexes Austin. Arn tries to stop the pin with a top-rope dive but Oli spots it, DQing Arn and giving the faces the win. Arn gets in Oli's face, but Rhodes forearms Arn down. Austin attacks Wyndham, but the faces spot it and run Austin off. The Dangerous Alliance retreats as Koloff checks on Wyndham. Thoughts on this one? It's a very fun, very spirited match. My problem is that there's no like, stakes of this. Mm-hmm. It's not for a title, it's not for a title shot. It's a good match, and it's got six really talented people involved. I just wish they were fighting for something in this match. If we went to see like a live event show, this would be a great, very enjoyable match to watch. And it's still enjoyable on here. But yeah, I just, I don't know, like, it's hard to get super invested. I, I appreciate the story that 
these guys are fighting against Dangerous Alliance, but at this point, there's nothing they're fighting for is all. Yeah, if you want it to be at least for like, oh, uh, Austin is ducking Wyndham trying to do a return title match. If they win this match, he gets it or something. something yeah, like something that. else. Yeah. Something you think that's, that's maybe on. a victim of, like you said, the six man belts being started to be brought back, but then stopped that like, like that's originally what the storyline was. going Right. To be. That, that makes sense. That goes Stensman to fight for, but then it's taken away. Yeah. That said, they do tell a nice fast paced story throughout with the six man format. There's less slowdown with mm-hmm. the work on a hold and everything. You get little bits of that, obviously, with Dustin Rhodes gets to be uh, taken out for a while because he loves being face in peril. Yes. He's, he's good at it, so I don't blame him. Oh, yeah. He does an excellent job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And definitely more believable than Koloff being face in peril. <laughs> True. He can definitely do it, as we've seen. Oh, yeah. I'm just picturing the six of them in the back laying the match out. And, you know, Austin's like, well, okay, so who's going to be the face in peril? And they all, just, they all turn and just look at Dustin. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, I know. Like, okay. <laughs> That's fine. It's only natural. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a little thing. I do appreciate this. So Wyndham and Rhodes are a tag team at this point, and they were matching cowboy boots. That's yes. how you know they're a tag team. That's cool. They're never doing matching gear otherwise, but the boots are a good symbol. The other problem is that so much of this match is built around, hey, remember this rule about no top rope stuff? I don't think it really truly bogs them down the match, but so much is built around, don't do this move because you'll get disqualified, or do this move when you do get disqualified. It's not like all of the match was enough that is distracting for me. Oh, okay. All in all, though, it is still a very enjoyable match. There's just zero stakes to it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think this was a really fun, chaotic tag match that gave everyone a chance for some highlights and featured some really nice tag work from both sides. I loved Arn slipping in a tag during a backslide, Wyndham managing one while collapsing, and Rhodes falling just close enough after a stun gun to tag Wyndham thanks to Wyndham's height. Those were really good, surprising moments. Mm-hmm. As you and I said before, tag matches can feel very similar to each other after a while. I think working in moments like that where a, a tag just shocks you yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is really a good way to keep them fresh. Agreed, yeah. It got very creative, and I also enjoyed seeing snatches of the old Anderson tag work in there in parts. It has been a while. Mm-hmm, yeah. The ending is a mixed bag. It's disappointing for this great match to end on a DQ, especially a DQ from Pretty Shoddy Rule. But at the same time, I'm going to disagree with you slightly on its involvement okay. in the match out, because I thought that did a great job to set up how the ending was going to go throughout the match, as Arn repeatedly tries to cheat with top rope moves, mm-hmm. and either uh, has to back off because Oli catches him or hesitates and allows someone else to grab him. So him getting caught by Oli in the end does make sense, and it does get some genuine build over the course of the match. Yeah. I just, I think for me, I'm less interested in the payoff to that because of what the story is. But I, yeah, I, I can totally see that point. Yeah, it's not just an out of nowhere moment. No, it no, is the match sure. story. Yeah, I get that. I still don't really like it either, but I appreciate that if you're going to do it, you at least do it with some actual effort. Oh, well, there is a point when he tries it and it gets punched by Wyndham, I believe. And they briefly argue whether that it shouldn't be disqualification because he didn't actually land the move. Right, yeah. He's punched while yeah. trying to do the move. Yes. You can't argue intent on a move. No. no. Yeah. I think the idea was probably that they needed to have a DQ from the rule at some point to really establish it in the fans' minds. But as you pointed out when we watched the show, Al, they did have a DQ yeah. from that rule in the Iron Man match. Mm-hmm. And that was the good way to do it, as they didn't have to end the match from that DQ. Still, aside from a slightly disagreeable ending, the overall match was loads of fun. I, I, I think I get the idea that it's armed because always a ref, and he, the idea is he, he thinks they'll be more lenient for him. Yeah, true. But it is kind of funny that 
aren't the one contacted over top rope moves. That is that is funny, yes. Because Bobby Eaton's finish is a top rope leg drop, or it was a top rope leg drop Fair. before the rules were changed, obviously. So just by yeah. he never tries it at all during the match. I guess he's smart not to try. The other part that I found hilarious during this match was there's one point where Arn has some kind of arm hold on somebody on the face side. I, I think probably Dustin. And Oli is obviously standing there checking for the submission, but I like to think that, you know, them being a former tag team partner yeah. that loved doing arm holds on people, Oli was like, now you got it cinched him right, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Giving him advice on the finer points of an arm hold, reminding him of what to do. Mm-hmm. I was like, I got it, Oli. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because in kayfabe, he's what, his uncle, I think? Oh, God, I never remember. It's not, it's not father and son. because that, that no, quite I, a f- It's either uncle or cousins. I can't. Yeah, I, I can't forget which. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as I noted before, Call of a team up with Ricky Steamboat as part of the tag team tournament. They ended up facing Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, who were also in the tournament. Okay. So at least there is follow-up from this match, keeping the Dangerous Alliance story going. So That's good, yeah. Fair play to that. As also noted, Rick Rude's there with Steve Austin as part of the same tournament. So at least this is all still going, even if they abruptly end this match with a DQ finish. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like it should end the storyline, and so I'm glad it doesn't. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Be really bad blow off for sure. Yeah. JR throws to Eric Bischoff, who is with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Let's go up to Eric Bischoff, who's standing by. Gotta be Eric for one of them. One very tired, but one very brave individual, Ricky Steamboat. Thanks, Jim. And you know, one of the great things about this tremendous sport is that you have an opportunity to see two athletes of caliber of. United States Heavyweight Champion Ravishing Rick Root and this man, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, may meet one-on-one in the center of the ring. And on any given night, one of those athletes may rise to the occasion and not only meet the challenge, but beat the challenge. First of all, Ricky Steamboat, congratulations. Thank you for being with us. I know that you've got to be physically, emotionally exhausted after that grueling battle with the U.S. Heavyweight Champion, but you've also have to feel elated and be at the top of your game and looking forward to a chance to meet Steamboat this time for the U.S. title. You know something, Eric, I would like to give thanks to all the fans that have stood by me in the past several months. It's been hard on myself, my little boy, my wife, all the false accusations, all the name bashing, the name calling. Well, tonight, finally, ladies and gentlemen, in a 30-minute Iron Man challenge, I proved to the world that this was my finest hour. This, without a doubt was the hardest wrestling match of my entire career. I feel good about being on top of my game right now and knowing, and knowing that the Dangerous Alliance cannot dodge me anymore and knowing, Ravishing Rick Rude, that I am the Iron Man and knowing, Ravishing Rick Rude, that I am going to be knocking at your door for more United States Heavyweight Championship match. You can bet that take it to the bank. I'm going to tell you, as the CEO of the Dangerous Alliance and as Ravishing Rick Rude's best friend in the world, my friend, you put on one of the greatest athletic exhibitions in the world tonight, but you have received your final chance at the U.S. heavyweight title. I don't just mean tonight, and I don't just mean this week, and I don't just mean this month. You have received your last title forever. So what are you talking about? There's Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack grabbing the fatigued Steamboat from behind. He's biting him in the face. Steamboat's Suddenly, Cactus Jack attacks. 
and he and Steamboat brawl near the stage until security separates them. This was an excellent promo by Steamboat, building up a terrific win and justifiably noting that he should clearly be number one contender to the U.S. title after a non-title win like that. Absolutely, yeah. I appreciate that even dangerously, when he comes in, cannot help but praise Steamboat's fight, Mm -hmm. even as he's denying him a U.S. title shot. That's true, yeah. He was so good that dangerously cannot lie about it. Yeah, yeah, right. That is good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jack's attack comes as a real surprise and works quite well with his overall mercenary storyline tonight, Mm -hmm. letting this segment build up multiple viable story paths quite well. I think, as you know, watching it, Steamboat seems completely recovered from working at Iron Man Matt. Isn't it amazing? Like, yeah. I mean, he's he's had, I don't know, about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Yeah, it hasn't been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I would be. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't make it through the Iron Match in the first place. Right. Let's no. Let's put it that way. But if I did. I would still be on a couch backstage somewhere gasping for breath. Yeah. You'd be uh, in those ice baths they use in like a pro, pro sports. Yeah. Yeah. Just like lying there, you know, waiting for the world to come back into focus. But sure, Steamboat yeah. is out on the stage looking none the worse for wear. Yeah. You know, having an energetic interview and then having a fight with Cactus Jack. Good gosh, man. You're good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's always nice to have a bit of Paul Heyman slash Paulie Dangerously on the show as well. Yes. Because they make a point of taking him out of involved in the Rick Rude match earlier, understandably so. And we get little tastes of him as the outside person, you know, yelling at the ref or, again, saying one to plan number two, all these things. Yeah. But you can always use more Paulie Dangerously on a show. He's, he's generally a, quite a good uh, character, yeah. Mm-hmm. I probably asked before, but I do wonder... If the name comes from Johnny Dangerously, the Michael Keaton film, I'd be shocked if it didn't. Yeah, I mean, it could be a complete coincidence, but yeah, it's like because yeah, that's that's mid eighties, and it's probably around the time he starts doing that. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be shocked if that was not the origin of this name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we go to the beach for the bikini contest finale, where Jesse is still moaning about wanting to be the judge. Bad is apparently totally okay with that and just joins him on stage this time in a sparkly blue cowboy outfit he's a sheriff now yes the two do an alleged comedy routine about bad sexuality then bring out medusa in something not too far from some actual red white and blue wrestling outfits that she ends up wearing yes not sure that chaps count as part of a bikini though yeah apparently someone has stolen missy's bikini which she claims was in a very tiny envelope Jesse and Bad come over to investigate, and Missy steals Jesse's scarf and bandana. Jesse and Bad now joke about Jesse's baldness. Bad goes in to Missy's tent to investigate and says he doesn't think she can come out like this, but Missy says she can. She emerges in a bikini that is allegedly crafted from Jesse's scarf and bandana, but clearly consists of far too much material for that to be the case. And has strings on it that also would not have been on a... It is clearly a professionally crafted bikini... That is made from at least twice to three times the material of <laughs> yeah. his scarves. There's no way. A good thing this wasn't later with like JR and his hat somehow like shields his hat and somehow turns his bikini. <laughs> yes. At least they made up material from a, from a 10 gallon hat though. Bad declares Missy the winner. Medusa calls him a piece of you know what and shoves him into her tent. And Bad comes out holding her top for some reason. Jesse goes into the tent to investigate and declares Medusa the winner moments later. Bad asks us to stay tuned. 
Neither one can actually declare the winner because it's done by fan voting. So JR notes that you can still vote and that Tony and Magnum TA will have the results tomorrow. They dragged Magnum TA into this? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Poor guy. This is not a great segment for quite a few reasons, not least of which that Bad and Jesse just do not have good comedic timing together. No. There's just massive pauses between each line as they're arguing, so it doesn't feel at all natural. Yeah. I at first was thinking that you could blame Bad for it because he's quite new to his role still. But really, like Je- Jesse is kind of flubbing up the timing here too, which mm. was surprising. You know, it kind of reminded me of in the wake of people finding his movies funny unintentionally. Uva Bull tried to do a thing where he had, he had the actors improv, okay. and it's it's very terrible. They're like an all improv version of one of his other movies, and you can see, and it's like you're saying, you can see where they go. They say a line, they're like, "Hmm, think what guys are going to say," and then they say it. And I could, yeah, because they're improving everything. It's just where this one. I actually feel like it's almost the opposite on this one. That it's it's because they're trying to remember exact right, scripted yeah. lines, but it has the same feel. Where it's just like, say something and pause. Oh, right, that was the line. Yeah. you know. So that brings me the other the other major thing with Donnie Be Bad, which much like the other issue we discussed, is mostly toned down as time goes by. Yes. So Mark Merrill, the actual guy that played Johnny Be Bad. So I have three issues with him. One, the whole how they handle the sexuality, allegedly, all that stuff. Second, and a much more minor issue, as I've discussed before, he's named after Johnny B. Good. This is not a song by the person he's impersonating. Yes, yes. It's a Jerry Lee Lewis song. I don't get why he's a little Richard and he's just, uh. Yeah. That's a, that's a really minor thing, but it, it gets me. Every time I see it, I'm like, why is your name that? Yes, yes, true. Third... Well, he is a very tan person. I've, I haven't seen him yes. in real life now. He is in so much makeup on here. It is practically blackface. Yeah. And potentially torso. Yes. My thought when I see him in this outfit, he has this very sparkly, shiny vest that says Sheriff Bad on the back of it. My immediate thought, especially with his little mustache, is he's Cowboy Curtis from Pee Wee's <laughs> Playhouse, who of note is played by Lawrence Fishburne. Who is actually black. He's actually yes. black. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So if you remind me of him, it is too much. Blessedly, towards the end of Johnny B. Bad's run, or actually not too far into it, that uh, aspect of it, I think, gets shoved aside and he stops doing the heavy makeup Thank- and everything, thankfully. Uh, yeah, we've seen some later where it's not nearly as bad. Yeah, yeah. By the, by the time he's finishing up in WCW, it's, it's just Mark Marrow just still calling himself Johnny B. Bad. Exactly, yeah. Him and Pillman have some good matches that are fully separated from this nonsense. Yeah. It was it was something that should not have been done. Yes. I will say, again, as bad as the timing is and as silly as the premise of her making the bandana bikini is, it's at least something extra than rather than just her walking out wearing a small bikini going, yeah, here's my body. Fair, fair enough, I guess. But yeah. they at least built us something. Edith is really dumb. Yes. And Deuce does her a little bit where she sort of a co- her coy smile. They, they cut to her like a soap opera. Where she's celebrating her victory of Everly stolen bikini from the envelope. It really is, is like watching General Hospital, and they cut to someone who would just, you know, scheme to fake someone's death. And like, yeah, <laughs> True. Of course, they did it. Yeah, I think the segment overall is pretty demeaning to everyone involved, especially the women. Yes, agreed. Not as much as any given five seconds of Mark Madden commentary in the year 2000, so there's that, but still, it's pretty bad. Yeah. 
just kind of a waste of time on this otherwise terrific show. Watch where, yeah, that's the thing is it stands out in a show where there's so much good throwback 80s action with the style mm. and how people perform with the 90s flourish of so much neon and the bright and everything. Even the fact that like the ring has the real blue and yellow going on. Yes, yeah. And you get that that vibe from it. So having this on the show, it's kind of disappointing because you wish it's on at a show what's otherwise bad, no yes. pun intended. So you could just go, oh, watch this part of this show. But it's this thing that breaks up a really good show with really no bad matches on it. Yeah, give Medusa a match, not a bikini contest. Please. She is wrestling at this point, as we saw yeah. on the AWA show. Yeah, she was wrestling before this and after this. She's good. She is, yeah. Yeah, I don't get why they had to put her in stuff like this at this time. It's funny, too, because I don't know the exact timing of this, but a couple years after this, anyway, she leaves to go to WWF after being in Japan, where they actually let her wrestle for a yeah. while, until they then stop letting her wrestle, and she goes to WWE, where they promise to let her wrestle, then don't for like a year. <laughs> yes. Then we'll make a title for you, and she never gets to hold the title they made for her. It's yeah. bizarre. She doesn't have a good time in WCW, does No, she? no. <laughs> it's a shame. Tony builds up the results of the bikini contest on TBS the next day and asks Eric about the Jack attack during the interview with Ricky Steamboat. Eric says it came out of nowhere, and when Steamboat gets his hands on Jack, there's going to be something to pay. This is like, it's so funny going from New Blood Rising to this, where it's like, everybody's swearing to people are refusing to even get close to swearing. Yeah, we're past shows where Sting, Sting of all people, is swearing at people, and then suddenly, gosh darn it. (laughs) Yeah. The two build up the world tag title match, and Tony gives us a, here we go to the ring. So close. (laughs) Our final match is Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Dr. Death Steve Williams versus the Steiner brothers Rick and Scott for the Steiner's WCW World Tag Team Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. In May, WCW made a big deal about bringing in Williams and Gordy, hyping up them as big international superstars. That is true. And of course, they wrestled in All Japan Pro Wrestling, where they were our favorite tag team name. The Miracle Violence Connection. Yes. Amazing. It's great. I will say this too. So looking up their history in All Japan, on Wikipedia, they list them like their build name in Japan. If you put their name from there in Google Translate, you get Murder Torpedo. <laughs> that's that's just as good. So our seventh match is actually Murder Torpedo versus the Steiner for the WCW World Tag Team titles. <laughs> Awesome. Yes. Love it. But yeah, so anyway, like I said, they were big stars in All Japan. All Japan essentially is the WWF to New Japan's WCW. Think of them as the two top companies, in, at least at this point anyways, in Japan. Yeah, they won their tag titles four different times. They got on to win them one more time in 1993 as well. So naturally, being this big international team, being this torpedo of murder, as they were, they obviously have to go against the Steiner brothers, who are the WCW World Tag Team Champions. Recently, the Steiners won the titles they're defending now over Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, beating the Enforcer and the Cruncher. The great tag team name. New <laughs> teams there. They also come up a point in early 1991 where it's true. They were WCW United States World and IWGP Tag Champions all at the same time. That's pretty impressive. Yes. So, while it's not built this way, this is arguably an international match because it's between All Japan Pro Tag Team Champions and New Japan Pro Tag Team Champions. That's cool. 
they do at one point in the match describe Gordy and Williams as the Japanese team. They do. Which <laughs> is, I guess, technically correct since they do at this point apparently reside in Japan, but uh, also a little bit weird to hear when you're discussing two very large American men. Yeah. <laughs> and worth, yeah, worth knowing they're part of that NWA tag tournament. They're one of two Team Japans. Okay. The other team is two actual Japanese people. <laughs> and then Liger is and the split U.S. one. But yeah, it's just funny that there's two Japanese teams, and one of them is actually Japanese, yeah. <laughs> Gordy and Williams make their way to the ring as Jesse rejoins JR at the commentary desk. The Steiners are next out as JR notes that they're the number one seed in the NWA World Tag Title Tournament. JR predicts, however, that Gordy and Williams are going to win this. And Jesse notes how unusual it is for JR to consider the challengers the favorites. Of course, to be fair, and not to discount Williams and Gordy, but the fact that Williams played for the Sooners might make JR a little biased in his favor. Just just a tad, just a tad, yeah. Scott and Gordy do some excellent counter-wrestling until Gordy gets frustrated and slaps Scott. They trade blows, and Scott takes Gordy down and rains down punches until Anderson interposes himself. Jesse notes that he's a small ref to be trying that. Yeah, Ole should probably have refed this match. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have a more wrestler and larger man that could be in this match. Maybe the two read Anderson on the schedule backstage and got mixed up which one was which. That makes sense. (laughs) Williams in, and he and Scott do some complex mat wrestling, then trade strikes. Williams tries a three-point stance, but Scott goes up and over and rolls him up for two. Williams nearly gets a pin on a Scott headlock, but Scott tags Rick. Williams blocks a hip toss and a takedown, but Rick rapidly switches holds and gets a belly-to-belly suplex. Williams lands forearms and three-point stance charges until Rick Steiner lines the crap out of him for two. Yes, yes he does. Williams and Gordy earn two with a Gordy back suplex and hurl Rick to the ramp, but Rick hits a sunset flip. Williams grabs the ropes, but Scott knocks him away from them for two. Williams and Gordy trade off working Rick's leg with a half-crab, leg lock, which Rick rolls over for a couple two counts, and a spinning toehold. Rick hits a belly-to-belly suplex and tags Scott. Scott earns one with a T-bone suplex and two with a crossbody, but Williams and Gordy keep getting him to their corner for cheap shots and double teams as Rick accidentally distracts Anderson. Williams and Gordy trade off working Scott's leg with a kind of half STF, like just the leg part of it. Yeah. A toehold kicks during a bow and arrow, a high-angle leg lock, and a half crab, and earn one with a Williams clothesline and two with a Gordy snap suplex. JR notes that Williams got the Dr. Death moniker in middle school. Yes. That is terrifying. Mm. Equally terrifying as trying to picture Dr. Death Steve Williams as a middle schooler. Yeah. I can only picture him like shorter, but still as muscular and with the big beard. Oh yeah, still with the beard for sure. <laughs> I find it funny too, because so Jared just drops that in commentary. <laughs> like there's no questioning. And he he, su- he almost seems surprised when Ventura asks him for follow-up on that. Explanation please, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it emerges that he just like, he was constantly beating people up or something. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Williams gets another two by leveraging Scott onto his shoulders, and when Scott gets a shoulder up, uses that momentum to turn it into a high-angle Boston Crab. Mm -hmm. Jesse does a great job calling the intricacies of that. Yeah. Scott crawls for the corner and makes the tag. Rick lands clotheslines and punches to Williams and Gordy and almost drops Williams on a modified power slam for two. Yes. Modified is JR speak for botched. Yeah, it is. 
everybody in, but Gordy disposes of Scott and Williams floors Rick with a clothesline. Gordy slams Rick off the second rope and tries a pin, but he's not the legal man. Williams tries it and gets two. More two counts with a Gordy dropkick and Gordy and Williams double shoulder block as we're down to five minutes remaining. More with Williams backbreakers, a Gordy back suplex, and a Williams gut wrench powerbomb, and Williams goes for the Oklahoma stampede, but Rick slips free and Steiner lines him. The crowd is absolutely roaring. Gordy clotheslines Rick, but Rick Steiner lines him into next week and tags Scott. Scott hits Gordy and Williams with back body drops, slams, and clotheslines, and a double underhook powerbomb, then hits the Frankensteiner to Gordy for nothing as time expires. Scott and Rick look disappointed despite retaining their titles, and Anderson does some wonderful miming of a Frankensteiner uninterrupted pin count due to time expiration while explaining to Scott. (laughs) I'm loving all the referee miming tonight. Yeah, yeah. Thoughts on this one? So I'm a, kind of of two minds in this match. There's a lot of hard-hitting action, which as you'd imagine with these teams. Yes. Because wrestling in Japan, you know, there's that whole strong style thing. There's like called King's Road style, I believe, as well. All about hitting people who are hard and you're dropping them on their heads and necks, which is great for long-term health, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. It makes for really interesting matches in the short term, but long-term it's not great for the bodies, obviously. There is a legitimate contest tonight in uh, who is who has the hardest hitting match. These guys or Mick Foley versus the Concrete Floor. That's true, yeah. So I really enjoyed those parts. Likewise, the parts where they're showing off a legit technical wrestling background, mm-hmm. bidding out of moves, escaping them. They punctuate these spots really well. Like they'll wrestle around for a couple minutes, and then Scott just throws Doctor Death over his head. Yeah. Or if Brick gets his throws. The intro section of this match in particular is amazing for feeling like a legitimate amateur wrestling contest, where you can tell all of these guys have that background because they know all the little details and tiny movements that you make when you're looking for the position and everything. Mm -hmm. That even when other people do kind of an amateur wrestling or, or counter wrestling approach, you don't get that kind of stuff. Yeah. They just lock up and then go for things. Mm -hmm. But the way they approach each other in this match, even feels legit as a contest yeah there's definitely a point where they, they're sort of eyeing each other and like there's a one where i think rick goes for a hold and like the guy spins out of the way mm-hmm. so like it's just there's a lot of really good stuff here in that that regard for me though i think they sort of work this backwards so they decided before they made this match that we're gonna wrestle 30 minutes to a draw mm-hmm. a lot of the middle is wrestled like they know they have to work 30 minutes to a draw I don't, it's never bad, but there's prolonged bits and holes, and Scott's, you know, legit, like, the face in peril for, like, 10 minutes straight. So it's definitely stretched to fill. To be fair, we have seen Scott as a face in peril for, like, 10 minutes straight in matches that are not time limit draws as well. I True. think that's just something he likes to do. Right, right. But as a whole, they work the match like they, they knew they were going to work 30 minutes straight. I think a 20-minute version of this match would have all the stuff you like in there, all the hardening match action the counter wrestling still some of the prolonged keep away from the ring and cut off spots which are all really good nothing is executed badly here at all other than like i said the one power slam where he kind of loses gordy for a second so i'm not shaking this from technical level it's just more on the rewatch i think again knowing it's gonna be 30 minutes to a draw it feels longer again nothing bad in this match like i said the even throughout there's little bits where they work like they would normally like mid poor uh, 
poor Rick getting kicked in the side of the head by Gordy, for instance. Oh my gosh, yeah. And that, Admittedly, yeah. he has his, his little head thing on to protect his ears from getting cauliflower, but still, that could not have felt good. And then that bit when they've got, is it Scott, I think, in the bow and arrow hold, and, yeah. and one of them's kicking him in the leg repeatedly. I'm like, mm-hmm. that cannot feel good. <laughs> no. Yeah, so for me, it's one of those matches that works really well when they go to their strengths. But again, when they stretch it to fill it, it's still entertaining, but you definitely feel them going, oh, we got to hold this pole for a couple more minutes. We gotta, we're got to, we not quite there yet. Oh, okay. I think it's because there's another 30-minute Ironman match. Another 30-minute match, sorry. That's specifically designed to be 30 minutes. On this show, I have them as direct comparisons, so I, I have that difference. Okay. I don't think that I felt quite the same way on that with it actually feeling like they worked backwards from it again. I, okay. I can kind of see where you're coming from on that, but for me, they, they kept things interesting during all the holds and things, and they changed them up enough that it felt more like just normal work the leg or work yeah, the Yeah, I, I think it's just if they, if they had more tagging in and out in that middle part, it would help me a bit. Yeah, they, they, it does stick more to a traditional face and peril kind of role than the like six man tag did. There's that comparison as well, to be fair. Yeah, so, yeah. but again, that's six men rather than right. four men. So, um, I thought this was an absolutely brilliant tag match featuring two teams who clearly knew each other's styles perfectly and could work together entirely comfortably, as odd a word as comfortably is to use in describing this brutal match. Mm-hmm, yes. The two teams worked extremely well together and mixed in lots of great, complex amateur wrestling all the way through the match with lots and lots of little subtle cues and motions you don't normally get in pro wrestling matches. With all of them having the amateur background, they knew exactly what that sort of match looks like and were able to put together something that felt legit and meshed surprisingly well with the brawling and pro styles that they used elsewhere in the match. Add a good old-fashioned attack-the-leg storyline that was used very well to keep Gordy and Williams in control, and you have a great, fun performance. I do feel like the time limit draw itself was a bit unfortunate. Mm. It's a slight mark against the match, though I do understand why you wouldn't want to have a definitive ending for this match as this 100% succeeded in making me want to see these guys fight again. Right. That's absolutely true. But so they look at it this way. Here's the pay-per-view match. You're paying, I don't know, 30 bucks for whatever the price is at this yeah. point to watch. Make sure to watch two days from now on TBS where you'll get an actual finish. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm saying I would want to see them fight again on another paper. I, I got you. Yeah, I mean, but the the actual way they work it is a little the way the way they work it is more again <laughs> looking back at the Nitro era. Yes, yeah. Um, I would love incidentally to see a tag team Iron Man match between these groups. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think I wouldn't mind the time limit draw here so much if this were not our main event. Yes, that's the thing I think that made it feel awkward to me. If you shuffle the order so the Iron Man match or Sting versus Cactus Jack goes last, I think this works. It's just a bummer of an ending to close the show. Mm-hmm, for sure. Otherwise, terrific match. Right. Oh, and to be fair, at, at that point, you're following a tag match and then a DQ. Yes. So here's a DQ tag match finish, and now here's a time limit draw tag match finish. This is Russell War 89 all over again, right? Yes. It's really super hyper-satisfying match in the that's you know, a couple matches from the end. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, there's more. And in this case, the two more matches are excellent. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they both have kind of disappointing finishes. Mm-hmm. To their credit, they probably put this one on top because it's actually a title match. Right. It feels fine in terms of importance of the match, but it feels off in terms of giving a satisfying ending to the show. I absolutely would love to see a bunch more of these matches between these groups. It's just this one, the way they worked ultimately, I enjoyed all of it for the most part, but just there's a little caveat to it. Okay. 
As noted at the beginning, the Clash of Champions 19 was taped four days before this show, but aired on Tuesday. So that tournament would take place, and the teams would face off again in the semifinals. They do the story where the Steiner's opponents were attacked before the match. They actually don't wrestle, whereas Williams and Gordy beat their opponents, I think it's Team Australia, handily. And they make it clear that what they did, like they took out their opponent because they won the Steiners. Okay. Their mindset was, we want to make sure that they don't actually lose before we get to fight them. So they changed the ruling on this show to where the semifinals begin on this show. Normally supposed to be all on pay-per-view. They close the show with Williams and Gordy versus Steiners, which is won in nefarious fashion by Williams and Gordy. Okay. So it really excuse me at first, because I, I said, Wikipedia talks about how this took place beforehand. Then you have to read, oh, right, it aired after. Yes. They don't explain <laughs> that Someone needs to make an edit on that page, so it helped me out a lot. This leads to that weird period where the NWA tag titles come back and they coexist with the WWE tag titles. Yeah, they're two different belts. Yes. And they make a point, as noted before, of getting rid of the US tag titles and keeping the six-man titles out of the company. I guess they only want so many tag belts. So we can only introduce one new belt, so get rid of the other belts. <laughs> so this leads to Williams and Gordy going on to the Great American Bash show going after the new slash old NWA tag team titles, where the WCB tag champions, unfortunately, are out of the tournament because of what happens. Gotcha. To add misery to, well, misery, these Steiners would also drop said WCB tag team titles to Williams and Gordy at a house show on July 5th. Ouch. And yes, it is the same July 5th house show I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, with Flamingo losing his title there as well. (laughs) It's a very eventful house show, apparently. A little bit of good news for you to give this recap a bit of a happier ending, which the show didn't give us. You remember Wrestle War, where they built that match with the Steiners winning the number one hindership to the IWGP tag titles, right? Where they, they bloody beat this poor young guy, and then Fujinami's got to keep the match running? Yeah. They obviously, they're number one hindrance. They would actually win their match, which, again, I mentioned before, is a match I really want to see, because it's the tag champions, Vader and Bam Bam Bigelow, against the Steiners in New Japan. Okay, yeah. It is online, unofficially, because of how things work with New Japan and old wrestling, but yes. That would be awesome. Yeah, they would go on to hold the title for six months in Japan. They'd, interesting enough for you, they would lose the tag titles eventually, around the end of the year, to the team of Scott Norton and the future Ludwig Borga. <laughs> no, at that point, is the Hellraiser. Oh, Okay. JR throws to Tony and Eric, who go over the night's events. Eric says it isn't over between the Steiners and Williams and Gordy. Tony notes that they'll have the bikini contest results tomorrow, and throws back to JR and Jesse, who praise the hard-hitting pay-per-view. Jesse says he's glad it's over because he was out of voice. (laughs) JR builds up the Great American Bash, and Jesse says Sting's match against Cactus Jack will cost Sting against Vader. JR shells Clash of the Champions and the Wrestling Hotline, and we get end credits over some simple beach graphics. And Beach Blast 1992 is done. So overall thoughts on Beach Blast 92, L? It's a very enjoyable show. Like I said before, there's not really any bad matches. There's matches that, for one reason or another, have maybe a disappointing finish or little bits here and there, but there's no match where I can go, oh man, this is terrible, let's never watch this again. Even like the, I mean, the least important matches... Like the uh, their singles matches, one with Terry Taylor, Ron Simmons, and the one with Buff Bagwell. I still say Buff, even though he's not Buff yet. I know. <laughs> and uh, Greg Valentine 
are still good. They're still well-worked matches. Like if that same match happened on New Blood Rising, most of these matches would be competing with the world title match for our Victor Mass of the Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly. Comparison. Yeah, I think um, even those two matches, they're not for a title or anything like that. I mean, most of the things on the show aren't for a title, which is interesting. It is, isn't it? But um, even those two matches are, are just good for building up these new performers that they're trying to start highlighting, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's not really any match on this show that I would call even remotely bad. No. Most of them, I'd say, are, are solidly good. Yeah. The worst parts on the show are the interstitial bits for the bikini contest yes. that have no place on this. Yeah. Other than the idea that it's a summer-themed show, but you could do better things. There's other things you could figure out for that, yeah. Exactly. I will say, looking back at this show, having to go through it over a couple of times, both for history notes and then watching it twice, obviously, I noticed there's a lot of weird repetitions in very exact ways in this show. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, as mentioned before, the former U.S. tag champions wrestle concurrent singles matches against young, up-and-coming talent. Okay. And it's like in a row, which is bizarre, that's together like that. There's no spacing here. You have two matches where a champion, in this case the world champion, U.S. champion, are wrestling on the show and not defending their belts in matches they should be defending their belts on. Yeah. And th then you have two tag matches, be one six-man and one regular singles, that end in less than straight fashion, one being disqualification to build up this rule and one being counted to build other matches up. And again, right in a row. Right in a row, yes. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, there's, there's a, there is a lot of two things happening in the interrupt. It's very interesting how that works out, yeah. That said, it's, like I said, it's all good. If you can get around the really bad and just otherwise just distasteful stuff with the interstitial bits of the bikini contest, it's a really good show, definitely worth watch. It has been quite a while since we've reviewed a show this good. Mm -hmm. Not a single match drops the ball on this show, as you noted. The majority are really good, and some are absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. There's seven matches on this show, and I'd say there's probably four that are easy contenders for match of the night, Yeah, maybe even five. If it weren't for the bikini contest, there would be no bad segments on this show at all. Mm -hmm. As it is, it's you know 90% great matches, 10% bikini contests, so that easily makes it one of the best shows we have ever watched. Agreed. I will freely admit I may be a bit biased just by my joy of being out of the NWO era for a little, but still, the show was just plain fun to watch and easy to get into and stay engrossed in. There's fast-paced and varied action, but even when matches are slower-paced by necessity, the performers never lost me, performing with such charisma and attention to detail that there was always lots to watch and it could keep me involved. I do feel like there's room for improvement, aside from axing the bikini contest and giving Medusa an actual match— <laughs> I think the show could really do to shuffle the match order, like we said, space the tag matches out in the show rather than having them one after the other, and put either Sting versus Cactus Jack because it involves the world champion, or the Iron Man match because you kind of need the Cactus match to already be done for that post-match interview yeah. in the last slot to end the show on a higher note. I get what they were going for. Again, the world tag title match is actually for a title, while Sting versus Cactus and the Iron Man match are not, so normally an actual title defense should trump a non-title match. Mm -hmm. But it would just really help to end the show on one of the definitive endings instead of having a DQ finish followed by a time limit draw for the end. Yeah, There wasn't a lot of promo content, but what was there was quite good, mm -hmm. with Ron Simmons and Ricky Steamboat both absolutely nailing their promos. I think we could have maybe added one from Sting after the Cactus match. Yeah. 
or from the Steiners after their time limit draw, as both of those felt worth a bigger reaction than they got. Still, largely a positive. The commentary team was also mostly great. JR and Jesse have an easy camaraderie, and while they argue, and Jesse will crack jokes at uh, JR's expense, it feels like they're friends. Yeah. JR is always great at getting across the match's action, and Jesse added some excellent insights as a former wrestler himself. The only real marks against commentary are Jesse's involvement in the bikini contest, which aside from the actual segments, gets brought up quite often during matches and things. Yeah. And the slight oddity of having two separate crews for commentary and show hosting duties, as you noted before. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. There's just really no reason that JR and Jesse couldn't do both and have Tony and Eric on interviewer duty. Sure. And having both crews sometimes means both go over the same points right after each other. Yeah. I also really liked the look and feel of this show. Yeah. The set design was fun and so nice to see after New Blood Rising's boring set <laughs> yeah. and the struggle WSW had getting a correct set for the Road Wild series, you know, four years in. <laughs> yeah. I appreciated everyone wearing beach or at least summery kind of outfits. It helped emphasize the theme. Mm -hmm. The camera work is sometimes a bit annoying, though, particularly during the bikini contest where cameras get tilted at wacky angles to emphasize the comedy. Mm -hmm. And there's one particular camera that they keep cutting to. I was going to mention this, yeah. Yeah. It seems to be set to just a slightly different color tone or depth or something than the others. Yeah, uh, the contrast and sharpness is, is like way up on it. Yeah. You'll see, you know, for instance, Scott's Diner and it'll look normal in the wide angle shot. But there's one camera, he's like really orange and like his pores are practically showing because the sharpness is up so high. There's also a lot of times where you can see the, there's a poor guy, I think it's Jackie Crockett, I've mentioned a bunch of times in this show, <laughs> of this series, where he's always in the corner. They didn't give him his little step yet, but he's, he's hanging on there. So it's important for their fight towards the corner. They bump him a couple of times. Yes. You notice that. He's holding the camera on, on like his right shoulder. So he's gripping the ropes and leaning back as far as he can away at the action. With his left arm, and you can see him in shot. But that also means you're not, they're not using his camera in right. shot. I don't think they ever use his camera angle when he's trying these heroic acts to get a good yeah. shot. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's sad for him, honestly. He's doing all this work for nothing. Yeah. We joked, I think, when after first watch, it'd be interesting if they had the raw feed from these, and they could cut between camera angles at free will. That'd be neat. Yeah, I think that would be an awesome, awesome app for them to build in. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one camera, though, definitely. Whenever they cut to that camera, it's a little bit jarring because you, you always get this brief disconnect of, wait, something's not right. Yeah, yeah. Like when I drove up to your house today and it was repainted, I was like, yeah. wait, is this really the right house? And the next time you come back, you paint it differently again. You're like, wait a second. You're just messing up with me at this point, yeah. And it's not without a few rough patches, but as a whole, Beach Blast 1992 was just plain great. An easy watch and a really easy recommendation. After seeing a few shows of WCW stumbling towards its end, it was great to get back to a night when it was going strong and see performers at their best, having fun and putting on terrific matches. Excellent, excellent show. Right. WCW's argument is competition in the early stages of this war, before it really became a full TV war anyways, was the WF is all cartoony, it's for kids, whereas we're strong as like competition, here's all these rules and people are, are fighting and it's real intense and this is the kind of show other than the bikini contest the fact that everyone's wearing neon because it's just the 90s yes like the fact that rick stein is wearing a solid pattern singlet and scott is wearing a split pattern which is weird that you're on the same <laughs> it's on the same always team. interesting how their outfits work together because they generally don't yeah yeah they, they don't sync these up at all as brothers you think they talk more but this is a good example of what they were going for because mm-hmm. You have these matches that are real hard hitting. 
whether you like the rules or not, they're really strictly enforcing these rules. Yes. It's not letting people do what they feel like. And you have these matches that, can you imagine like in 1992 WBF having that Williams and Gordy versus Steinberg match? It wouldn't seem right. Right. Yeah. Compare to WCW 2000, where as we noted on New Blood Rising, they never say that it's an ODQ show, but everything is clearly being contested under no DQ rules because there's no other explanation for what's going on, except that the refs are regularly threatening to DQ people. That's true. It's yes. like, I believe it when I see it, ref. Yeah. On this one, again, like you said, whether you particularly like certain rules or not, they do a good job of incorporating them into the matches, making them part of things, mm-hmm. having them be enforced in a mostly rational fashion. Yeah. It gives the show such a nice feel I'm always most a fan of WCW when it has that more sports-like atmosphere, when it's Absolutely. when it's trying to be in a, a legitimate athletic competition or act like that. Mm-hmm. And this show is just, it's it's so strong in that. I, I really appreciate that. There's two points where it's really strong. One was like this, and one was just absolutely insane, in, but in an enjoyable fashion. Yes. Like mid-90s, like 94, 95, Hogan, Dungeon of Doom nonsense. Those are the two really adorable parts which we went too far one direction or the other towards the end of the company trying to trying to correct these things. Yeah. So this is definitely one of the stronger ways to show it. Mm-hmm. Match of the night and MVP. So Al, your match of the night. So a lot of strong competition, as mentioned. The opening match is a real sort of dark horse match, given that for a title that most people forgot about and WCW clearly didn't care about all that much. By, by critiques, you have the six-man tag match, which was, again, enjoyable if they had just had some stakes, and the 30-minute final match with the Steiners and Wins of Gordy, which was really well contested, I just felt wasn't paced quite right. If you're listening, it's pretty obvious what I'm going to pick, and I'm pretty sure what Bob is going to pick, but it's, it's obviously the Iron Man match with Rude and Steamboat. It's such a good match that it, it, it really edges out these other matches that are also really good in their own. But yeah, there's no other match to pick better than that. Yeah. Especially in Rewatch, I picked up so much in that match. Yeah, there are several really good matches tonight. Mm-hmm. And on any other night, the opening match, Sting versus Cactus Jack. Yes, that's true. I meant that. That's really good as well. Or either of the uh, two final tag matches could easily, easily be match of the night. Yeah. On, on any other show. They just had the misfortune of being on the same show as the amazing, career-defining Iron Man match. Mm-hmm. The Iron Man match was a thing unto itself. It managed to even use the top rope DQ rule well, mm-hmm. and it lacked any notable flaws that would degrade it even the slightest bit. Yeah. It is one of the best matches we have ever watched yeah. for Let's Go to the Ring. Right. And there's simply no way that I can choose anything other than that. Yeah, again, if our biggest critique is why isn't this for a title, that should tell you something. Yes. Yeah. All right, Al, MVP. I really thought long and hard about this one, to be honest with you. Because, again, like I, I often try to, I try to, if I can find a match that doesn't win matches tonight and pick one person that really stands out in some way, I'll do it. So, I mean, looking back, I mean, you have both Pillman and Sky Flamingo do really well in their match. Mm-hmm. All four people involved in the final tag match have a lot to show, especially for me, Gordy, who I don't see very often. He was cool, shows. wasn't he? Yeah. He has a lot of technical expertise mixed with suddenly just kick you in the side of the head. And just throw you around, it's really, really enjoyable. Sting, obviously, Sting is always a strong hitter. He changes the game a bit to match Cactus Jack. This is a match for a long time. Mick Foley said it was his best match ever. So that says something about that yeah. as well. 
And again, everyone in the six-man tag, really good. I mean, Wyndham works his style really well. Koloff shines in his big, strong moments. The heels all work really well. Dustin, the great face in peril, does all these little things right. But going back to it, I can't pick anyone besides one of the two people in the Ironman match. So I've got back and forth in this part as well. I mean, ultimately for me, I have to go Steamboat. He does so many little things, like I've said a couple of times now. Like the way he sells moves, the way he recovers from moves, the way he powers into moves, the way he powers out of moves, the way that he he slowly fought his way up climbing the turnbuckle to kick off for the ending. Yeah. Oh, man. Because obviously that's a very famous spot done in WrestleMania 8 this exact same year, I believe, Mm -hmm. with Bret Hart doing Piper, and they do that really well. They have the benefit of not wrestling as long, so it's much more of a quick counter. He sort of runs up and kicks off really quickly. But it almost makes it better that it's this slow climb, right? Because like, Yeah, because it, it works well in this match. Yeah, yeah, it fits the story yeah, exactly. so well. He, he always struggles to fight the whip and pushes off. And even there's a little gap there of time when the impact of landing it stuns Root and then he adjusts his pin on there. But yeah, I can't pick another steam over the match as much as I want to go to the pool to shine here. Yeah, for me as well, this had to be between our Iron Man participants, Steamboat and Rude. Both did absolutely amazing work in the match, and Rude's pure desperation at the end was a sight to behold. But Steamboat's excellent work throughout, combined with his great post-match promo, yeah. pushed him just a smidge ahead of Rude for me. Yeah. So I'm going to give it to Steamboat as well. I was almost tempted to say it's Rude because I was pretty sure you are going to pick Steamboat, but... I can't get my instincts to pick on the steamboat here. Take nothing away from McRoot. He has so many good details. Again, trying to do his hips full pose and he can't. Mm-hmm. The way he reacts goes from super confident to sudden fear at the end. And and his selling throughout of the ribs oh, yeah. as well. He does an excellent job with that as well. Again, you could really diagram a match like this if you were trying to learn wrestling or really study wrestling. Mm-hmm. Root is amazing as match. They both are. Yeah, they they both put on an amazing show. I for me, really, the, the clincher is that Steamboat also gets that excellent promo. I think if Rude had also got a promo, it'd be, it'd be really up in the air which one I would pick. If they have Rude confront Steamboat, for instance. Yeah, if it had been both of them in that segment, I don't know how I would have picked. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. It would have been a coin toss. You might have done what I was going to do when somebody said Rude because I picked Steamboat. You might have done that. Yeah, yeah. And that wraps up our review of Beach Blast 1992. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Beach Blast 1993. A day at the beach. A night for revenge. Oh. That sounds more like the setup for a cheesy beach-based slasher film than a wrestling show, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's jarring, yes. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Anytime Taylor uses, sorry, anytime trailer, any trailer, trailer, he's a different guy. You're a little early for a trailer. Yeah.